This is the Master Cinema Cast. My name's Tom Jennings. And I'm Joachim Peterson. And joining us today to talk about Touch of Evil, we have West Anthony. West, thank you so much for coming on board with us today. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Um, I think Joachim and I can safely say we are kind of fans of your work on um, kind of like podcasting and things like that. But before we get to kind of your career on the airwaves, um, we're just going to do a quick little rundown of what's going on in the world of Masters of Cinema. Joachim, what have we got? Masters of Cinema, they are having a slight sale on their Blu-rays uh, on their office site, so you can now get about eleven of their of their Blu-rays for nine ninety-nine pounds. Uh, among those are movies like Punishment Park, which we've talked about, and also the uh, Tulane Blacktop uh, Blu-ray. But we up it on uh, put out the links on our Tumblr and Twitter and Facebook. So if you follow the links from there, you can find out which ones there are. Okie dokie. I mean, uh, West, have you kind of seen it? Like films like Punishment Park, and um, we've got kind of like For All Mankind on there as well. Are you kind of familiar with any of those? Uh, no, I hadn't seen Punishment Park. I, when I listened to your episode on it, it made me very curious uh, to check it out. So I, I do plan on looking at it uh, at some point in the future. Yeah, I think one thing we should do actually, Joachim, is put out kind of what region they are, because some of them are multi-region, and I think mm. it might be worth for kind of people in kind of like foreign parts as it were, because um, yeah, I think I think if memory serves, I think Punishment Park is actually kind of a multi-region yeah, Blu-ray if memory serves. Yeah, so it's kind of like one of those ones where you're not going to have to kind of get uh, loads of software to kind of be able to watch it, but. I think kind of really we kind of want to talk about West today and kind of you know you know, what what your kind of your background and kind of podcasting and you know what, what kind of um, kind of views on films and you have like that kind of West could you give us a rundown of kind of you know where we can find you and um, you know your sort of thoughts on film in general really. Well, uh, you can find me at uh, the Autorcast, which is the uh, the best movie podcast in the world with the most willfully pretentious name. Uh, Rudy Obias <laughs> and I, we started uh, doing that podcast uh, a couple of years ago. We're actually coming up on 200 episodes now. We're, actually, we're probably going to be recording our 200th episode tomorrow from the day that we're recording this one. Uh, and that's just sort of came about as a result of me uh, starting to put in uh, guest appearances on his old show, the, the Criterion cast. And I also did a couple of guest appearances on Battleship Pretension. And that's, that was pretty much my, my entry point into the wonderful world of podcasting. Yeah. And before, I mean, that, I mean, how, how did you kind of get in contact with those guys? I mean, what was the kind of the kind of the end point for you? Well, I really just started out as a fan. Uh, Criterion Cast, you know, they they used to have a little chat room thing where they were because they would record their stuff live uh, over the internet. You could go on what was it, UStream, I believe it was, and uh, I would just hang out in the chat room and and I just started putting in comments and they responded and so we sort of became friends that way. And then with uh, the guys from Battleship Pretension, uh, I actually met David Bax at uh, Comic Con uh, back in 2010, and so uh, you know we became friends that way, and uh, so that's how we sort of became aware of uh, each other's existences and then I was invited on their show uh, not too long after that no I mean it's it, I mean it's I think a lot of us I mean um, sort of get into podcasting kind of vary down various routes and it's something I think sort of it, it seems to kind of accidentally happen for a lot of us I mean I know in my own kind of case it was because I was just I was completely bored one day and I just suddenly decided to turn around and I sort of thought you know I'll suddenly start kind of putting what I think about film um, kind of down on the airwaves as well and I think you know your tour cast I mean it kind of brings it home I mean I, I think with my my other podcast 24 Framecast, i've been going since like 2010 or something like that i think i'm up to like 40 episodes i mean you guys i mean 200 episodes in two years i mean that is a ridiculous amount of kind of um output i guess i mean 
do you find you have to be incredibly disciplined to get that amount of shows out? Well, we do record fairly regularly. Uh, we try to do uh, two episodes a week. Um, as far as the, the release schedule goes, unfortunately, that's not quite as disciplined. I mean, we, we Both of us are incredibly busy. I mean, I have a day job, and Rudy is uh, basically sort of running around as a freelance writer doing uh, everything that he can to make ends meet. So, you know, we, we're trying to, to get stuff out there as, as much as we can, but we definitely do record two episodes a week, and uh, we'll be going that way for a while. I'm not sure at some point whether or not we might end up uh, being so busy that we might have to slow that down. But you know, f- for the moment, we're trying to get as much done as we can just because of the very nature of our show, which is, you know, for those of your listeners who are, are unfamiliar with it, we pick a director and we go through their entire filmography, one episode per film, uh, to get down to the, the bottom of what it is that we think uh, qualifies them as an auteur, if in fact they do. So... As you can imagine, that's a lot of movies. I mean, we just got started on Alfred Hitchcock earlier this year, and that guy's got over 50 movies to his name. Uh, we're just wrapping up uh, our series on Billy Wilder right now. Uh, that guy has a lot of movies. So you can imagine, th- there's, we've been at this two years, almost 200 episodes, and we've still barely scratched the surface. We haven't touched Steven Spielberg. We haven't touched Steven Soderbergh. We haven't touched David Cronenberg. We haven't touched uh, Martin Scorsese. There's so many people, uh, Truffaut, Godard, Kurosawa, that we would love to talk about. And it's just, it's going to take time, but we'll, we're definitely going to make every effort to get to them eventually. But as you can see, it just uh, think about how many films all those people have put out and think about how long it's going to take us to get through them all. Yeah, and I mean, that's the thing as well. I mean, one of the things I particularly enjoy about kind of the auteur cast is, I mean, because I guess you might sort of think it kind of like focuses around the art house, but I mean, you guys have covered people like, you know, like Michael Bay and things like that. I don't think it's a kind of a snobby podcast, is it at all, really? I think it is literally sort of, you know, anyone who kind of takes your fancy. Exactly. You know, don't don't be fooled by the name. I mean, I have some plans uh, for some stuff in the pipeline. And there, yeah, you're right. There's stuff that we've done before, like the the Michael Bay series. Uh, we started out on uh, a James Bond series, which we'll be getting back to uh, shortly uh, later on this year. I have plans uh, in the pipeline to do a series on Warner Brothers animation directors because uh, that's just uh, a part of uh, the cinema experience that is very near and dear to me. And an auteur doesn't necessarily mean the director neither. So, yeah, a Warner Brothers animation, that would be pretty interesting to listen to. Yeah, and I mean, you, as well, I mean, you, you do bonus episodes as well, don't you? I mean, there are some, there was some kind of like variety kind of thrown in there. I mean, I've noticed that, you know, over the years you're doing, I think it was like a Best Picture Oscar kind of, uh, uh, kind of marathon as well, haven't you? Yes, that's another thing that, uh, it's a great idea that Rudy came up with, is once a month we uh, discuss the film that won the Oscar for Best Picture. We started with the most recent one, which at the time was The Artist, and then every month we were working our way back. Right now we're in the mid-90s, so pretty soon we'll be uh, doing an episode on The English Patient. And we're just going to keep going all the way back. It's it's going to be a very cool way to, as it goes further back in time, to get into some more uh, classic cinema and be able to talk about films that we might not necessarily be quite as interested in talking about the entire filmography of, uh, of some directors, but you can get into that one thing that they did that somehow managed to capture the zeitgeist and win Best Picture. And that's something that a lot of people are interested in, those Oscar-winning movies. Yeah, and I mean, I remember as well, I, I think it was an episode some time ago where you were talking about that, that most of your kind of, your audience was, wasn't so much based in America, it's actually kind of, kind of around the world. Is that still the case, have you found? 
It is. Uh, we're finding out that there's all kinds of people all over the world who are listening to us, I think more so than in the United States. I would say we probably have an equivalent number of people listening in other countries than we do that we do here in, in America. There's people in, in South America. We have listeners in Australia. We have listeners in Europe. We have listeners over in Hong Kong. It's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things that always surprises me, actually, when you kind of check the kind of the feed and where everyone's based. And it's like, I mean, I had one the other day and it was like flashing up like someone in Bolivia. And you kind of like think to yourself, like, how is it on earth? What, how has that person discovered it? And you, what, you suddenly start wondering to yourself, you know, what, what is that person like? And it's, I, I think it's, it's kind of the beauty of podcasting, really, is that from kind of from your bedroom, you can have this kind of like, you know, worldwide audience, as it were. You know, it doesn't matter how kind of, kind of big it is, I suppose. But it's kind of, I guess it's kind of the, the kind of film discussion which kind of unites the world, as it were. And I mean, is there any kind of other plans in the pipeline for your third cast? Are you going to kind of stick to the form you've got at the moment? The format is working pretty well for us. So, yeah, we're going to stick to it. And as I said, it's it's a format that's rich with possibilities. Uh, there's so many filmmakers with a, a lot of films under their belt. That, so There's so much material for us to discuss. No, exactly. I mean, it's like, you, know, you can kind of go anywhere and anyone, can't you? I mean, as well, I mean... It kind of, kind of, kind of, your kind of film kind of life in general. I mean, you somebody kind of goes to the cinema every week. I mean, do you own kind of thousands of DVDs? I mean, how important is kind of film in your life? Oh, it's extraordinarily important. Uh, film and music, really together, are like the the two biggest things that in in my life. And which is why if somebody makes a film about music, uh, that you, I gravitate towards it immediately. Um, I fell in love with film uh, from a very early age, and. Uh, I'm not somebody who went to film school or anything like that. I, in fact, do not have a college education. I took a couple of classes at a junior college here in the San Fernando Valley, and that's about as far as I got. Everything that I know is more or less self-taught. So that, that luckily, you know, I came, up, I came of age in an era when the home video phenomenon was really just sort of getting underway. In the 1980s, it's when it became possible for you to create your own film library you know back in in the olden days when i was a kid you know you you didn't have access to all these movies whenever you felt like it you know when casablanca was on tv then that was it you you planted your butt down in front of the tv and you watched it and you paid attention you weren't doing mm. anything else you know you weren't uh you weren't texting, you weren't twittering, you weren't making a sandwich, you weren't doing your laundry. You paid attention to that movie because who knew when or if it was ever going to be on TV again? So <laughs> that's that's part of the thing that, uh, unfortunately, I think has been lost among uh, a lot of people today. I mean, even I, you know, at, there's been instances where I'm watching a movie at home and I'll you know, idly check something on the Internet. It, but back in, in when I was a kid, you, you definitely you had to give everything your full attention. That's part of the whole thing that uh, that changed so radically in, in the 1980s when you had VCRs and suddenly you could just amass your own film library. And I started doing that with uh, videotapes and then I switched over to Laserdiscs and then I switched over to DVDs and now I'm uh, in Blu-rays. So, yeah, I've, I've been curating my own film collection for pretty much my entire adult life now. And have you still got those blue, uh, sorry, those laser discs as well hanging as, around? Or, as a matter of fact, I do. I still have a great many of them. There's, there's, uh, I've held on to some just for sentimental value. There are some that I've held on to because, uh, for instance, I still have the original uh, un, untouched Star Wars trilogy on Laserdisc because, of course, uh, nice. George Lucas has withdrawn that from public circulation. And I still <laughs> have several uh, Criterion Collection titles because there are there are extras on there that 
just weren't made available anywhere else. So like the 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 Adventures of Baron Munchausen, for example, they had that on the Criterion Collection, and there's there's a wealth of materials, including a commentary track with Terry Gilliam that I I consider to be uh, priceless, and it's not available anywhere else. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's a, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because I know someone who um they their laser disc actually broke the other day, and um they they they're absolutely devastated because they had some of the Bond criterions, and they were sort of saying you, know, and it, obviously you can get the kind of the Blu-rays now and stuff like that, but I think their kind of point was the fact that they're never going to be able to kind of see these great films again. I think the Fisher King was it the Fisher King Criterion as well. Yes, is, I have that um, one too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's like another one, apparently, which you know, they were sort of lamenting the fact they could never listen to the commentary on that one again. But, yeah. you know, it's uh, it's I mean, what, what kind of like you know, your collection at the moment? Are we kind of talking in the thousands kind of DVD and Blu-ray wise? Yes. Yeah, I, I think it's safe to say that it's somewhere in the thousands, not not quite as many thousands as uh, as perhaps it used to be. And do you ever feel guilt about your kind of expenditure? Because I, occasionally I have these breakdowns where I suddenly see the, the postman coming along with a bag full of th- discs from Amazon. I just suddenly <laughs> think to myself, I was like, I, I, surely I must have better things to spend my money on. Do you have that guilt occasionally? Or I feel guilty when I don't get something that it goes out of print. <laughs> Yeah, it's something yeah. That, that I've always wanted it. You know, if I had the opportunity to get it on sale and I thought, well, no, I, I'm not going to do that. And then suddenly it's more expensive. Or, But yeah, there there have been other things that uh, I would like to have had that went out of print. And now I can't get them for love or money. That's that's yeah. when I feel bad. Yeah, yeah, I like the attitude, Wes. That's the, you make me feel better about being about spending thousands on Amazon every year. Yeah, that's good. I just spent twenty percent of my savings on the Criterion warehouse sale that Amazon had uh, yesterday. So that makes me feel a lot better. It's, it's nothing to be ashamed of. I, my only thing with getting Criterions at the moment is. I keep getting them stuck at customs and then have to pay almost the same amount that this costs. You suffer from that occasionally, Joachim. I have them sent to Hunter uh, that we had on the show for not long ago. Um, so uh, the ones I uh, order from Amazon, they get sent over there. And the uh, ones I order from Barnes & Noble, they are listed as books, so they get through customs without any problem. Right, well, thanks for telling me that um, yeah. three months ago, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Kim, and now I've spent about £100 on customs. So cheers for that, buddy. Yep. So anyway, um, okay, so should we crack on with um, Touch of Evil then, guys? What's my fortune? You've been reading the cards, haven't you? I've been doing the accounts. Come on, read my future for me. You haven't got any. Hmm? What do you mean? Your future is all used up. Why don't you go home? Um, okay, I suppose I'm going to begin, really, by kind of I just want to have a little conversation really about kind of awesome worlds before we kind of get kind of stuck into the film because um he's, he's one of these directors who he's kind of the poster boy for kind of the Hollywood screw job and it's I, I think it's important really just kind of talk about kind of really how important he is as a director because often we hear these kind of terms band around he's this kind of 
master filmmaker and a genius. And he really is a master filmmaker and a genius. And I, I think it's just worth just kind of talking about him a little bit before we kind of crack on. Wes, what was your kind of what's your kind of experience of Orson Welles films, and where does he kind of kind of rank amongst your kind of kind of Hollywood heroes, as it were? Well, he is a giant. There's no doubt about it. Uh, the funny thing is, though, I don't really put him in a pantheon of Hollywood heroes simply because he was abandoned and shunned by Hollywood fairly early on in his career. And in fact, you'll see that with this film, Touch of Evil, this is his return to Hollywood after a decade uh, working over in Europe, uh, trying to make movies over there and taking roles as an actor in films uh, in Hollywood. It's just, uh, it's, it's a real shame how somebody who is so clearly uh, a brilliant artist, as Orson Welles was, could just be given the go-by uh, by the, the industry uh, in this town where I live. It's, it's kind of frightening. It's saddening. It's frustrating. Uh, it's very easy to, to get angry about such a thing because you think about all of the opportunities that a guy like Orson Welles could have in Hollywood to really just make something that's going to knock your socks off, and he was just almost never given that opportunity. And then in the rare instances like this one where he was given an opportunity, then it got yanked out of his hands and, and taken away from him and turned into something else. I mean, what, I mean, what kind of other films other than kind of like Touch of Evil and kind of obviously the, the obvious, which is kind of Citizen Kane, I mean, what are your kind of other particular favourite Orson Welles films? Well, The Magnificent Ambersons is really a, a brilliant movie. And for all the, that was done to it, I mean, the film clocks in at about 80-something minutes, and it was originally like a little over two hours long. There was a bunch of stuff taken out. Uh, the ending was changed, and it sort of made it to something a little more sappy and sentimental and, and upbeat, which is entirely unjustified when you consider everything that came before the, uh, the ending of that film. And yet, The Magnificent Ambersons is in some ways uh, a more assured directorial effort than Citizen Kane. I won't go so far as to say it's better, but there are some things about it, I think, that are better than Citizen Kane. It really is just a, a spectacular a spectacular film that was only just recently made available on DVD here in the United States. And there again, that's another one that I have on uh, my, my, I have a Criterion Laserdisc of the Magnificent Ambersons that I've been holding on to for all this time. You know, that's, that's how much I love that movie. And then, of course, uh, this film uh, that we're going to be uh, talking about, Touch of Evil, I, I think is uh, a masterpiece, uh, not only for Orson Welles, but just in film noir in general, which is one of my very favorite uh, film genres. Yeah, I mean, I, I keep waiting for the day it comes on the news that they've been going through some abandoned film vault in Uruguay and someone's found the complete version of The Magnificent Ambersons. And... It, I, it, it, I think it's number one on my list of films that I want to see kind of restored. You know, you know, we had that kind of the great story what happened with Metropolis. And it, I, in a way, I, I, I like the fact that we don't know for sure that there is a vote. There was apparently um, he was sent a complete copy of it when he was down in South America. Right. And there's this, I, I don't know how much of an urban myth it is, but I've heard a rumour that he was definitely, he was in South America, they sent him all the reels and a complete version was down there somewhere. What happened to it, no one knows. And I quite like the fact that it, perhaps we will never know if the, if this is actually true or not, because it kind of kind of gives me hope that uh, you know, I'll be on the new, I'll see the news one day and it would have turned up and we can kind of see it, how it's meant to be seen. I mean, Joachim, what's your kind of like thoughts on Orson Welles? Well, Orson Welles, he... He's described as this cinematic giant, as we said. And it's interesting because we talked about Floating Weeds last week. And that's another one who's also described as this giant in cinema history. And I had the 
positive effect of that with Orson Welles that I felt he exceeded my expectations when I was first introduced to him. I was, uh, I think I was like 14, 15 when the restoration came about and they showed it on TV. And that was the, f- that was the first time I saw a Wells film when they showed Touch of Evil, the reconstructed version. And I, I was just floored by the, the visuals and just the assured direction. Not that I, I didn't have a full grasp of what, I thought was the magnificence in the film, but I could just feel that this is a master at work. And it was actually my first Master of Cinema Blu-ray that I bought. Uh, he's just just a giant, and it feels like I've heard about him throughout the entire cinema life that I've had. There's always been talk about Wells and how he has influenced cinema history, basically. Yeah, and I think... For me, Orson Welles. I mean, he's a director who, when, when all through my life, really, I've heard about kind of Citizen Kane. It was you know this masterpiece, and I actually watched it. and I was like, actually, you know, it is a pretty incredible film. And I, I find he constantly surprises me. I mean, it wasn't. I mean, last year I watched F for Fake. I mean, have you, either of you seen that film? I have not. I have. Uh, I I love that movie. Yeah. It. I mean, and this was apparently at the time when you know he wasn't getting any money, and he was kind of like on the fringes of you know, basically having to kind of like beg, borrow, and kind of. You plead for money all over the world, and he makes this. It's a fairly incredible documentary, I think. I mean, it's it. It kind of blew me away, and I mean, it's. I don't. West, have you got the Criterion edition of that as well? Yes, I do. It's got this kind of extra on it, and he's kind of even like in the seventies, and he's kind of you know become this outcast, and you kind of see this guy, and he's so upbeat, and he never ever let the system beat him. Really, he was always trying to make films. And I just, when I was watching it, I just felt so like kind of humbled by him in a way. You know, he was a filmmaker till the day he died, and you know, he never, he didn't sort of go off and sulk or anything like that. He carried on making films. And I mean, F for Fake. I mean, it's in the Master Cinema Collection, and obviously the Criterion one too. We will get around to it one day, but it's it's certainly a, it's other than kind of uh, the um, Touch of Evil and Citizen Kane. F for Fake has to be one of my you know, possibly my favourite film he ever did. I, I'm just completely blown away with it, and. Um, yeah, he's just, I mean, as we're going to talk about in a minute as well, I think the other thing I love about Orson Welles, he's such a great actor too. It, 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 people talk about him as kind of directing genius, but I mean, I, I absolutely love his kind of performances. I mean, you know, what, what, what's your kind of thoughts on those, West? Well, there's no doubt that he's a great actor. You look at him in this movie and there are people who are, to this day, they're kind of fooled by his performance in Touch of Evil because they think, well, oh, well, that's Orson Welles, a fat old guy. And in fact, you know, he was only in his early 40s when he made that movie. And it was just it was makeup and 60 pounds of uh, prosthetics that uh, that he was wearing that makes him look that way. It's just that uh, 20 years after that, you know, he looked that way pretty much all the time. And so then people look at Touch (laughs) of Evil and they think, oh, well, yeah, that's of course that's Orson Welles. But it wasn't. I mean, the guy was, you know, he came out of a a theatrical background. You know, he staged productions in the theater before moving on to radio and then into cinema. And so he knew a lot about the craft of acting. And also he knew a lot about makeup, about how you can 
change yourself in, and become really become a different person just through makeup and modulating your voice and just all, the whole craft of acting. He had all that stuff down as well as directing. So it, and once again, that's something that I think maybe people don't necessarily think about very much because as an actor, maybe a lot of people think of him as just a guy doing voiceovers for commercials and you know putting in a cameo appearance in the Muppet movie and things like that. But you go back and into his career and there are a lot of really great performances from this guy yeah i mean i suppose it's kind of as good a segue and that that's kind of like begin kind of tucking into kind of touch of evil because it's certainly i, I think you know the kind of awesome worlds that the act the performance is really kind of the main things that i want to kind of discuss and so i mean this is really a fairly kind of standard noir story isn't it when I mean, we have this kind of film begins with this incredible tracking shot and we see a car starting off on the Mexican side of a kind of small border town going over to the American side. A kind of a bomb explodes and we kind of have these kind of newlyweds. Um, Detective Vargas played by Charlton Heston and Susie, who's his new wife, played by Janet Lee. And the kind of the, the question becomes, you know, where you know, where's the crime actually taken place? We kind of awesome wells turns up who's this local um kind of police captain called hank quinlan and it, it sort of begins and you sort of think the whole point of this film is going to be finding out what this kind of bombing is all about but as the film starts you slowly, slowly begin to realize there's something else going on in the film and it's although this kind of obviously the the bombing is going to play an important part in it. It's more about kind of Hank Quinlan and his relationship with Vargas. And it's, to me, it's the kind of the perfect kind of, I suppose, kind of cinematic foil when you think you're getting one kind of a film and it begins to kind of turn into something else. And I want you to talk about that before, but what was kind of like your first experiences of Touch of Evil and how do you kind of react to it the first time you saw it? Well, for me, uh, the first time I saw it was on television. Uh, like a lot of people in my generation, you just uh, you got to see movies on TV before any, you got to see them anywhere else. And it was amazing because that's one of the things that I, from my childhood, I'd always done a lot of reading about movies. And so I was aware of things uh, and movies and things in movies before I had ever actually had the opportunity to see them. So it was weird having read about Touch of Evil and read about the opening three and a half minute uh, tracking shot and what a, an amazing uh, visual achievement that was and how difficult and intricate it is. And then you finally get to see it. And I think for some people, you know, you, you read about something or you hear about something and then you see it and it's not quite as overwhelming as it is uh, if you just see it without any preparation for the first time, without anybody telling you what, what you're going to see. Uh, that was not the case with Touch of Evil. I mean, I was fully aware of what I was going to be looking at before I saw it. And then when I saw it, I, I my jaw still hit the floor. It is still an amazing thing to, to, to see that that opening tracking shot. And then w the way it ends with the, uh, the the bomb going off in the car, uh, it's it starts the movie off with a bang, literally. And that bomb is a MacGuffin. Because you're right, It you think that it's going to be this investigation about what happened with the bomb and all that, but really, nope, it turns into something else. It turns into a study of, uh, of corruption and decay. I had the uh, interesting experience of actually watching this one before Citizen Kane and just coming into this very fresh. And this was before uh, I really got uh, cinematically savvy. And uh, it was just... You, you heard this name of Wells that I, that I said earlier that he kind of loomed in just cinematic history and I was uh, even though I 
I knew that this was a troubled production. Uh, I was still kind of enamored with the results and I wasn't very uh, um, learned in these older films so I was really taken with how gritty and just how flashy everything was uh, like a this quintessential black very film noir film and it, it just got me incredibly interested in cinema history basically and I feel like it's the quintessential Wellesian film of capturing all of the themes that he's interested in with moral ambiguity and just this uh, sleazy and kind of grimy, ambiguous characters that he loves pursuing. And Citizen Kane is the only other film that I've actually seen, but I think I, think I actually hold Touch of Evil a bit higher than Citizen Kane just because of this. It feels like it has more power and more life in it than Citizen Kane. Yeah, yeah, I mean, for, for me, me I, I, I associate, associate this film... film and sometimes when you watch a film, it, a large part of it's due to kind of the experience you had around it. And I remember, I've spoken to about it before in 24 Frames cast, but it was... When I actually saw this film, it was... I lived down in Kent in southern England, and it was one of the kind of the rare kind of times where it was a blisteringly hot day. And I'd been around the pub all day, and I decided I was going to go home about 10 o'clock. And as I kind of came home... Um, it was playing on the BBC and it was the first time this new kind of restored version had been shown. And I, I sort of, it was, it was so hot. I had to open all the kind of the doors in the house and it, it, it kind of reflected what was actually the kind of the heat that you actually kind of see, you know, well, you can't see, but you kind of, you know how hot it is in the film. And I sat there and I watched it. I thought, oh, I won't, I'll, I'll take the rest of it. I won't make it all the way through. Cause I was a little bit drunk to be brutally honest with you. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to fall asleep at any moment. And this film begun, and I was absolutely mesmerised by it. And I had seen Citizen Kane before, and I obviously knew who Awesome Wells was. But I was almost ashamed to kind of admit it to people that I actually preferred this over Citizen Kane. And I, I can't remember how many times I've seen it over the years. And, I, you know, I, I, after I saw it on kind of BBC, it was just still in the 80s. I think it was just pre-DVD, and then it was released on VHS. I picked up the VHS. I picked up the kind of the DVD that came out, and I picked up the Blu-ray. And it's one of those rare films that through every format change, it's one of those that I really look forward to coming out because I just love seeing it better, you know, in a better quality, basically. And, I mean we can kind of go back to that, that that kind of opening shot and I think it's something that we really kind of do need to talk about because I went to go and watch Man of Steel last week and I sat there and I thought this doesn't this doesn't impress me and I know, I know it should do and you know, all these kind of incredible effects and these kind of like these explosions and whatnot but I've seen it before when you watch this in Touch of Evil and it's kind of this is pure filmmaking this I think it is so impressive, even by today's standards, what he actually does. And every time I watch it, I think my admiration for the sheer kind of ballsiness of it grows. I mean, West, I mean, it's one of those moments, I think it's probably one of the kind of the most striking moments in cinema history. And I think that's obviously quite a bombastic thing to say. But I genuinely do feel I think it's a moment of cinematic beauty that I, I you just don't see it every week yeah it definitely is something that i think has had far-reaching effects over the years since its uh, original release in 1958 you can see numerous instances of other filmmakers trying to do their own version of that i mean you know uh, of course one of the most famous is 
the uh, the steady cam shot that Martin Scorsese did in Goodfellas when he was following Ray Liotta and Lorraine Bracco through that uh, that nightclub. You know that that was a shot that was pretty intricate and went on for a long time. Um, and then, of course, uh, the opening shot of the player, which directly references the, uh, the the shot of Touch of Evil while it's trying to do the same thing. Um, and there are other instances where they they're trying to do it and they, they're sort of they're faking it in a way. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the Julian Temple film Absolute Beginners, which was from the uh, the mid 1980s. Uh, he tries to do an, an unbroken opening shot, but I mean, you can see that there are moments where you know he passes by something that that uh, covers the camera for a moment, and then of course, obviously, when when the camera is uncovered, you know that there's been a cut there, and he's someplace else, so he's faking it. Uh, and there's there's an instance in uh, the Steven Spielberg film uh, War of the Worlds that was uh, particularly striking. There's a really long tracking shot where. Tom Cruise and his children are there driving to get away from uh, the Martian menace, and the camera is like swooping in and out and around this minivan. It's which is it's breathtaking, but you know that it's being done digitally. Mm. This is this shot in Touch of Evil is really where that all starts. I mean, nobody really got it into their heads to to try and do stuff like that. I think until he did it. I, I'm I'm sure that's probably wrong. I'm sure there are some instances uh, in other movies earlier that they, where people were doing something as intricate as that, but it really seems like this is the one that captured a lot of filmmakers' imagination. You had uh, Alfred Hitchcock doing Rope in 1948, but the camera is nearly as flashy as uh, Wells's in this uh, opening shot. Right, and, and he's doing the same thing that I said that Julian Temple did, which is when he has to yeah. change reels and he run, he's running out of film, so somebody <clears> will step in front of the camera and the screen will go black for a split second and then the person will move away, and you know there was a cut there. Mm. There's no cuts like that going on in this opening shot, which is why it was it, it's so justifiably celebrated and why you know people admire it today and why it was so difficult to do because they had to do it over and over again because there there were there was no way to to do a cut. And I, I think uh, not only that it's just a long shot is that it it creates a tension and it creates a geography of the entire city that is so vitally important for the not only the tension but just the suspense and just the how to set the mood for the entire film i think that this long shot it it is so incredibly important for how the film plays out yeah i mean it has a genuine dramatic reason mm. for its existence and i mean you know because you, you place that situation the audience right from the beginning you we're we're fully aware there's a bomb on this car and what's even i mean i was watching it again today and it's brilliant because the the car kind of goes in and out of shot sometimes. And there was a bit where um, you suddenly get introduced to um, Varga and Susie as they're walking across the road. And suddenly the car comes back in. Like, oh, my God, it's going to go off. And you sort of sat there and it, you know, you've got the sound kind of coming in and out. And no, it, it's just it's incredible filmmaking. I remember uh, well when I was watching it this morning, in fact, it made me recall um, a scene in. Have you, have you seen Contact by Robert Zemeckis? Mm. Either of yes. You you have that brilliant opening scene where kind of the girl runs up the stairs and she opens the cabinet. And I remember at university, one of our lecturers was the director, Paul Anderson, I mean, from of Resident Evil fame and all that kind of thing. And, you know, I know his films aren't exactly kind of that great, but he's a top guy, very, very nice man and stuff. And he, he set us this challenge, which was to go away and think about how that scene was done practically. And we all kind of went away and we were kind of scratching our heads. And then he kind of came back with the kind of the crushing disappointment that um, it was actually digital. It was fake. 
it was a complete kind of setup basically and then one of the films he talked about was touch of evil and it was a kind of this comparison of basically saying you know, this is modern filmmaking that's filmmaking then and that's why you should be so kind of so impressed by this and it just kind of blows me away every time that i see it because it's it is so when you try and I mean I, I don't worst I mean are you aware of like how many t- kind of takes it took to actually do this? Uh, I don't know the exact number, but it was definitely more than a few because one of the things that you'll notice at some point in the shot, you will see that dawn is just about to break, and I mean I yeah. know they had been at this all night, and they supposedly. Uh, Basically, it just kept getting screwed up towards the end. When you get into the dialogue, one of the border guards kept screwing up his line. And it got to a point where Orson Welles told him, just tur- turn your head away from the camera as you're saying your dialogue. So, and then you know, if you screw it up, we can just dub it later. <laughs> and, that's, and so they, that's, that's what they ended up doing, because he still did end up screwing up that, that last take. But it was the very last one that they were able to get before dawn. And th- so they, they did manage to get it in the can. But it, it definitely it, it had to be more than, I would say, definitely more than three or four. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard rumours it was something in the region of like like 10 times they had to do it. And I think for, from what someone was telling me, I don't know if this is true or not, but I think some of the kind of the extras who were kind of walking around were actually kind of like assistant directors kind of giving people their cues. Because if you see the final version of it, literally, I mean, it's absolutely bang on that. Um, Charlton Heston and Janet Lee appear as the kind of car goes around. It just disappears out of shot, and they appear and stuff like that. And it, it, it's just—it blows my mind. It's still, you know, how they do it. And I, I think you know the sound of this this film and the kind of the atmosphere that it creates. Because whilst I was watching it again today, is what you see in this kind of this take as well is that there's really no difference between the Mexican side of the border and the American side of the border. And I think that's kind of something that Orson Welles is trying to kind of say is the fact this 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 place there's no kind of difference in the kind of the i don't you you assume don't you that the kind of the american side and certainly the kind of characters well talk about the american side as being better but it's not and it kind of creates this sort of ambiguity i think to the film that it's you don't see people kind of putting that much thought and effort into kind of kind of shot composition today i I just i i can't think of another example of an opening of a film that is better than this I think that's why people have been trying to top it so many times over the years. You couldn't do this shot and have a cut in it because it it wouldn't it would just ruin the the tension of it. I feel, and it, it can maybe in the hands of a lesser director, you would feel that it was maybe flashy and like narcissistic and egotistical and like he's trying to get your attention by holding this up as some sort of mantelpiece, but. It's just in the hands of Wells. He's so confident, and he's it's just done in such a stylish way that it, you 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 can't help but admire it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we talk about the kind of the opening as well, but I mean, I, I think overall, I mean, the, the direction in this film is. I don't think you, there's there's not a single shot that I think you could possibly kind of criticize or kind of ask why it's there. I think it's kind of this is the consummate really kind of. You know, directors film I mean what always amazes me is about when you have directors like this who you know they're starring as well 
and they've got so much to think about. Mm. You know, I'm, you know, they've got to think about their performance. They've got to kind of think about the actors, and then they kind of kind of, kind of director, you know, director mode. I mean, West. I mean, we've obviously spoke about the opening, but what do you find? That, you know, do, you, do you enjoy the direction throughout the film? I mean, is it something which you kind of like? Even when you watch now, you sort of sat there thinking like, this is kind of you know, a masterpiece, as it were. You can tell that there's there's the. It, this film is being guided by a sure and steady hand through every scene, through every frame. You just you can tell that Orson Welles is in his element, that he has complete control of what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows the effects that he wants to get, and he knows how to achieve them. And he succeeds every time. The only really, the only time that, that people have ever had a problem with the movie is when they they saw the original theatrical release because it was kind of messed around by by the studio. But you have the restored version uh, today. And now you can really get a much better, clearer sense of what Orson Welles was going for. And there are also little gaps in the story here and there that are filled in and make a lot more sense. There are the lines of dialogue that make more sense now because you have scenes they are connected now to scenes that, that take place elsewhere in the film. So, that, so it makes more sense, whereas it, it didn't in the original theatrical version, which I never even saw until I bought the uh, the 50th anniversary DVD, because my introduction to Touch of Evil and the one that I had been seeing for so many years was the uh, the sort of preview version that they're calling it now, the preview version mm. that uh, that Universal found and they, they sort of put out in the 1970s. In my experience with Touch of Evil had only been with that one. And then when I bought the 50th anniversary DVD and I saw the theatrical release for the first time, I just there were several moments where I was just thinking, wait, what? Why, why, did, why is this? Why isn't this here? Why did they take this out? This doesn't make sense because that wasn't there. And th- with the restored version, everything is, is in its right place. Yeah, I mean, it's like when I, when I was watching it again this morning and I, I don't think any kind of... D- director, to, to, my, to my knowledge, he, he, no one does a close-up like Orson Welles other than perhaps Sergio Leone. And it, it, it's as I'm kind of watching this film, he at one minute he kind of it's quite he, he uses kind of big wide shots and things like that, and he said he goes in incredibly tight on people, and it's it, it, it's quite disconcerting, and it's it's often mimicked. And as I was kind of going through it again, I, I was I was thinking to myself, you. Know, how did this guy never ever kind of you know how how's this film never been nominated how did it not got nominated for loads of awards at the time and um, yeah like you say west i think it might have something to do with the fact you know it got kind of butchered really in the cut but how is it that people didn't see you know in the kind of the hollywood establishment really this kind of the, the guy's genius it's so clearly there and i mean i know that you know francis um Truffaut and people like that you know they kind of worshipped um orson wells but it just baffles me how people at the time did not see that this guy was as talented as he clearly is. But there were people at that time in Hollywood who really just didn't get it. They didn't see the brilliance of Orson Welles. It's hard to believe, but I mean, as much as there were people who did get it, and thanks to them, you know, we still we have these films that we can look at them today. And you know, we, we have this restoration. As much as there were people like that, there were still other people who just... They, they didn't see it at all. Uh, I had read that uh, Ed Mull, who was the guy who was sort of mm. in, in charge of production at Universal, I mean, even years later, the, uh, the, the guy uh, who went out and, and produced the restoration of Touch of Evil, he managed to track down Ed Mull uh, when he was like in his 90s. And he still said, and I'm, I'm quoting here from somebody, is it that uh, he felt that Wells was a poser who never made a film that earned any money. Wow. Really? <laughs> 
So yeah. you know, that's that that is that is a, a, a genuine attitude of some people in Hollywood. They they just they had no idea what they were dealing with, and they just thought very little of it. And it's uh, and of course, obviously, that's an attitude that still persists today. There are still people who are running things in, in the studios who they there are genuine artists out in 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 filmmaking today who are just not being given the opportunity to do what they what they can do best because the studios just feel that they they just don't see their worth, they don't see their value, and of course they don't see any money out of it. Yes, yeah, it's, it's it's a fairly kind of timeless story. I mean, cause the thing is, well, I mean, one thing when you, when you watch such people as well is that sometimes you don't actually even realize until you kind of go back to it again like how clever it was like I mean the, the apartment scene as well I think because that Joachim you, you, you put something in notes that you don't actually even kind of realize it because I suppose of kind of the the, the, the scenes that are going on you know, the kind of the dialogue and things like that but that's another scene where it's it's all in one shot isn't it yeah when they go to Rita Lanik's apartment and we find the dynamite that Wells uh, planted in that box and it just it's, I think it's a five minute scene or seven minute scene or something and you're just caught up in the dialogue and the back and forth between the characters and everyone is moving from room to room it's so incredibly claustrophobic that scene and it's all in one continuous long shot and I feel that it's even more impressive than the car shot and the opening shot because it's such a effective shot in that it. You, it it's not as attention grabbing as the the opening shot, but it's just as effective, or maybe even more effective. Yeah, it's not until I had seen the film maybe three or four times that I was suddenly aware that oh wait, this is another unbroken yeah. <laughs> shot. And there's yeah, there's two of them in that whole uh, apartment sequence because mm. it's sort of broken up when when Charlton Heston leaves the apartment to go across the street to make a phone call, uh, and mm. then they'll they'll come back, and it's another. Both of those shots are about five and a half minutes long, and. That was yeah. It I I won't go so far as to say that it's more impressive than the opening shot, just because there's a lot more to deal with in the opening shot. Yeah, there's a lot more mm-hmm. space. There's a lot more people and vehicles and things running around, and of course the camera is mounted on a crane, and who you know there's any number of things that could go wrong. Whereas in the apartment, that's that's a set. It's in much more controlled conditions, and also the set was specially constructed so that walls could you know be moved around to accommodate the camera movements. So there's there's considerably more trickery involved in that scene than with the the opening shot but the 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 apartment shots are no less intricate because you're right there's a lot of people hanging around in that apartment and wells has to stage this thing so that you know people are constantly mm. moving around and so that the composition within of people within the frame is constantly shifting and you're composing like wide shots and then moving into a two shot. And at one point you move into a close up of, of Charlton Heston and it, all this stuff that you would normally do with, you know, with a bunch of different shots and a bunch of different setups. He's doing it in one take with one continuous camera shot. And it is incredibly intricate. And it's also sort of a, a really smart thing for him to do is on one level. Yes, it's showing off. Uh, but on another level, because this is the film that, so sort of Wells' return to Hollywood again. He'd been working elsewhere for for ten years. You know, taking maybe apart from acting, he had made like two or three movies over in Europe. Uh, this was really he was really hoping this was his big ticket back into the Hollywood studio system, and this was a shot that was really sort of in a way it was made to impress 
the guys at the front office because this was done on the first day. The the, the first day of the shoot, they, they, they spent all morning and mo- some of the afternoon just rehearsing before the cameras even rolled. They spent a certain amount of time getting everybody into makeup. And the people, you know, the, the studio representatives who were on the set were getting increasingly nervous and antsy about this. And then finally, they roll the cameras. They do it a couple of times. They get the shot done and boom, right out of the bat. First day, they are three days ahead of schedule. And the <laughs> studio is over the, oh, they're over the moon. They're, they're completely thrilled about that. So that, that's such a smart Smart move on Orson Welles' part. So not only is he doing something that's visually bold and daring and spectacular, but he's also getting in good with the guys in the front office, which he had to do. So it's 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 a combination of cinematic skill and studio politicking that you're seeing in this one brilliant shot. Yeah, I think part of the um, of that comes from the fact that you know, Orson Welles he's a magician. You know that was his. I, mean, I don't. I, I don't know if you're too aware, but are you aware how he met Milana Dietrich, why she's in this film at all? Oh, sure. No. She was his uh, magician's assistant. Uh, he used to do shows uh, for the uh, soldiers who were you know, stationed in Los Angeles or passing through Los Angeles at the USO. And uh, yeah, she was his magician's assistant. That's that's There's a lot of information about like stuff like that. And uh, it's really great biography of Orson Welles uh, by Simon Callow, a, a great uh, British actor as well. And yeah, when I found that out, I mean, it was a few years ago now, but it, it kind of amazed me because you think I just I would love to have seen one of those shows so much, <laughs> you know, Milana Dietrich and Orson Welles doing you know, a, a a magic show together. And I, I was thinking about that same in, in respect of that kind of shot. You know, he is a, he's a magician and he's a cinematic magician to be able to pull that off because you're so focused on the dialogue and the exchanges between the characters that you don't actually realize the fact that well you know hang on a minute where, where's the kind of the normal grammar of film where's the edits where's the cuts you know where's the where's the change in fo- focus you know, it's all taking place before your eyes in this one beautifully constructed shot but I mean, we, we, we kind of touched on it a little bit but I think it's a, a good point jumping off point to talk about kind of Hank Quinlan the character because in the hands of Orson Welles this is to me at least, one of the great performances that I've ever seen. I, I, I can't say it's the best performance I've seen because I've not seen all the films ever made, but in my experience of cinema, this, it, it continually kind of leaves my jaw on the floor just how good this is. And again, I think it comes back to what kind of you were saying, Wes, that people just don't really appreciate the, the kind of the craft of acting really to, to kind of get how good Orson Welles is in this film. Oh, yeah. And like I said before, is part of it is with this film anyway, is that people think that that's what Orson Welles looked like. They didn't realize that he just had a lot of makeup and prosthetics and stuff uh, you know, underneath those clothes to make him look a lot bigger than he actually was. The guy is uh, he is a, an amazing chameleon. You know, he can it's it really seems like he could do anything. And you look at him in this performance and it really is one of the, the great villainous performances not just in film noir but i think in all of film i think that there's anybody it's funny that when you mentioned uh what is it, a man of steel you you see uh, you know uh, michael shannon as as general zod and you think well hank quinlan could wipe up the floor with this guy we don't need superman because <laughs> hank quinlan is just I mean, it, he really is just the, the epitome of malevolence and corruption in in films like this it's incredibly remarkable 
Well, I, I think it comes down to the fact as well that when you're watching Wells, I mean, he's kind of like mumbling through the dialogue, isn't he? And it's half, sometimes it's kind of quite hard to see what he says. And he, he keeps making these kind of like little snide asides about people. But it and forces you to pay attention to him, though. That's part of the thing. That's that again. That's I think that's a really smart thing that Wells is doing, and I think that's why he's doing it. Because he, some at first, yeah, you're, you're not sure what he's saying, so you have to you have to pay closer attention. And you're so whenever he's in the frame, you're always gravitating towards him because yeah, he, he's tossing out little asides, he's muttering under his breath, and so he's basically just he's going to steal every scene out from under everybody else. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that is the one thing I guess is that. It's very much the kind of the the, the the Quinlan show because you know Vargas, I suppose, is meant to be kind of the honourable nice guy in the film, but everyone loves a baddie, and especially in film noir. I mean, it's one of those jumps. I'm always whenever I watch film noir films, I'm always rooting for the bad guy, and Frank Quinlan's one of those people where he has this mystique about him in this town, almost like you know he's a legendary status, isn't he? He's the one who he you know, he's never kind of not been able to solve a crime, and he has this kind of reputation as being the greatest detective and it, it, to me I, to me it's one of the great kind of the the great kind of cinema introductions to a character because you have them kind of like talking about him for picking him up and then obviously kind of this okay, kind of fat suited up awesome wells appears and you, you sort of look at him you think well he's not kind of much to look at but it's it's the dialogue and the delivery i think from wells that makes the character I and mean, Joachim, what are your kind of thoughts on him i mean the first time you see him is this incredibly obese dirty grotesque man and it's just that his undoing is his racial prejudice but that comes later in the film early in the film we see that is he's using his evil methods but he's doing it for the greater good quote-unquote but once we learn that of his like racial prejudice and you kind of turn on him gradually throughout the film and it's what leads to his demise that he can't have this Mexican man this Vargas beat him he has to he has to do better than him and it's kind of interesting I, I read a comparison between this character and Ethan Edwards from the the searches the John Ford film and it's like they're they're both these dark protagonists with severe inner turmoil and it's this simple story that is transformed into a into a self-discovery journey because of this, uh, these interesting characters that go on this grand journey. And uh, you have also Joe Grandy, who's this, he's kind of presented as the villain early on, but um, as the film goes along, we see that Quinlan is, his evils are so much grander than Grandy's. You get sort of sympathy for Joe Grandy as he's being murdered by Quinlan because he, he, he becomes entangled in this greater greater mystery story that he really knows nothing about and Quinlan he's this just a cynical and savage and spiteful character and just disillusioned by the system and you can see that the words I'm using to describe Quinlan is words that have been used about Wells and how he has reacted to the Hollywood system it's kind of interesting to see the comparison between the two Part of the thing with uh, Uncle Joe Grandy is, yeah, yeah I think you, you hit on it right there, is that it, when you first see him, yeah, you think that he's going to be the bad guy of the piece. But in a way, from the get-go, you're sort of kept off balance in that regard because it seems like maybe he's either he's 
a villain or he's comedy relief? Because there are malevolent moments, but also it's a very funny performance. Akim Tamirov, a great Russian uh, character actor, is a guy playing Uncle Joe Grandy, and, and he's great in this movie. As it goes along, really, he's he sort of becomes like a, almost a secondary villain, but it also he's like a comedic villain. And yeah, you're right. As the story progresses, and you come to see that Hank Quinlan really is the bad guy here, and then you know, Uncle Joe himself will will fall victim to him. Then you realize where the uh, the seat of power lies, and you realize where the villainy is in this movie. That, but the the performance uh, for Uncle Joe Grandy is is still great, uh, and I, and I that's one of my my favorite things in the movie. I love Akeem Tamirov in this film. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the humor because it's a detective noir thriller film, but it's so funny as well because uh, you just have these, like Dennis Weaver as the night worker in the motel. It's just this incredibly quirky guy and all of his scenes are, his line deliveries just crack me up. And the scene between Grandy and Mrs. Vargas in the opening third where they're kind of yelling back and forth, yeah, 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 and just all these quips and snide remarks that Wills makes throughout the film. It does There's a lot of laughs in, 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 in this film, film as well, as dark as, dark as it is. is. Yeah, I mean, it is. Uh, again, when I was watching it today, it's... The, 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 I mean, the, the, you know, Joe Grandy, I mean, he's a complete buffoon. Yeah. He's the least, he's the least scary villain, and uh, in, in a way it makes... I think it makes Hank Quinlan even more scary because this guy is just, I mean, he's, he rules this roost. I mean, everything that goes on, he is the person who's kind of behind it. Who is the sort of the, the, you know, the, the, the big kind of evil doer in it. And you know, it's, as I'm watching it, to me, it was the kind of the, the sides that he keeps making and these the sort of comments when someone says something, he's like, oh, well, you know, you know if, that's, if that's what you think. <laughs> and it, he's constantly putting people down. And what's even funny is no one seems to pick up on it. Mm. He, just, he just completely destroys like, his friends and anyone around him. And yeah, I, I was just sort of thinking to myself, you know, I, I, like Wes was saying, really. Baddies aren't this good. The only person who I could think who I've kind of liked and despised at the much same time was Tony Soprano. That's he's he's that kind of a character. On the one hand, you kind of think he's this horrible person. On the other hand, you kind of you sort of love him in a, in a strange way. And I don't think you know. Obviously, Orson Welles is no fool. He knows that we have to sort of sympathise with him a little bit. I and mean, we have this kind of quite sad backstory about what's happened to his wife. And I've kind of got a little bit of a theory on that i mean do you think it's remotely possible he actually killed his wife that was one of the things i was thinking today no i feel like the at least with the the little bits of backstory that they throw in uh in in the course of the picture uh the the idea that i get is that somebody killed his wife and he was unable to find the person responsible and that led him down this road where he was going to get his criminal he was going to catch his man by hook or by crook by any means necessary and that if that meant fabricating evidence then and falsifying evidence then he was absolutely going to do it it was the the, the death of his wife which I, I don't think he was responsible for or had any kind of a part in i think that the grief that he felt over the the powerlessness of be not being able not only to prevent her death, but not being able to bring her killer to justice. I think that's what led him down this dark path. There's this huge question mark that kind of Vargas throws up, which is the fact that his previous cases are all flawed. And I suppose it's spoiler territory, really. 
But in this case, the person who they are going to try and frame for th this bombing, it's actually shown at the end of the film to be correct. And what we assume is the fact that it's wrong and basically Quinlan is just setting this guy up so he can kind of get the case done and dusted, still be the hero. And it's kind of an interesting thing to me was because he talks about this kind of feeling he gets in his leg when he's going to get some sort of, you know, insight into something. And in a way, it's true, isn't it? Because when he's, uh, Vargas is kind of tracking him on, on the recording device, you know, he gets he gets this feeling that he's been recorded and it's correct. And obviously we find out that kind of he was right and the, the person he thought did do the bombing it was actually correct. So in a way, one of the things I was thinking about today as well is how kind of bittersweet it is because all these kind of cases he might have been right all along and i think that's the, the his reputation might kind of duly be deserved it's yeah it may just be that he's just too lazy to actually have done the real legwork to catch these people and he was right all along but i'll tell you what uh i don't think that's the case uh because you go back to an earlier scene where uh, his, uh, his partner, uh, Pete Menzies, uh, which is my favorite performance in the film, I'll probably have more to say about that later, played by uh, Joseph Kalea, uh, you know, he's, he's asking Quinlan what he wants him to do with regards to the, uh, the kid, Manolo Sanchez. And, and Quinlan's response is, you, you know what to do, break him, break him. And I'm thinking now of a recent documentary called The Central Park Five, which is a, uh, something that actually happened uh, here in America. It was in New York and uh, back in the, the 1980s, I believe it was, where uh, a bunch of uh, uh, black kids, teenagers, were convicted of uh, a hideous crime in Central Park uh, because uh, a confession was coerced out of them by the police, which you know, they were then made to sign, and they did not do it. And they were later found innocent, and they were released as a result of it. Uh, so when... Uh, Al Schwartz says that, oh, well, you know, he didn't have to do this. Is it? The kid confessed. He was right all along. Uh, that's not necessarily so. Uh, it could very well be that uh, somebody just broke the guy, and he just decided that uh, it would be better for him to just make this confession even though he didn't do it. Because, and, mm. and we now have numerous instances uh, in real life of that's very, that very thing happening. So uh, now that's just my two cents on the issue. It, it's... Because that, that's part of the one of the intriguing things about this movie. That it could be, yes, it could be that Quinlan was always right all the time about all these cases, but he was just, you know, loath to take any chances and so would go out of his way to create evidence for his partner Pete Menzies to find so that these people would be guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt. Or it could be that he was just so monstrously corrupt that they, he would just fixate on one person and do anything it took to get them to confess to the crime and to put them in prison or put them in the chair or whatever they were going to do with it. So, and that's, and unfortunately it is a, a sad truth of at least here in the United States, I can't speak to where you guys are, but here in the United States, uh, unfortunately I am all too aware of uh, several instances of uh, police coercing false confessions out of people. Yeah, I, I suppose that might it might be my kind of love of of of, of Quinlan coming through. I want so badly for this guy to be right, you know. Because, like I said, I, I do sort of appreciate you know a, a good baddie, and he's certainly one of them. But yeah, I mean that's a, definitely that's complete for you, and it's completely made me kind of rethink my sort of initial thoughts on the matter. I, I mean, I I kind of like the fact that 
you know, from my perspective, that this was this kind of bittersweet sort of statement that this kind of super cop who is awful has kind of died and you know, might might have been right all along. I, I think that, yeah, well, like I say, it's, it's kind of the ambiguity, of, I suppose. It doesn't sort of kind of neatly kind of wrap its, its ending up. Quinlan, he's been doing this for 30 years, so to have all of his cases uh, to actually catch the actual bad guy, it seems unlikely that every one of his um, of his victims were actually guilty. So having having confessions coerced, it, it seems highly probable. I, I suppose it's film noir, isn't it? It's a bleak genre. Mm. You know, it doesn't. It doesn't. I mean, a lot of film noir films that they don't sort of leave you with this, uh, you know, overriding sense that everything's going to be great after it. I mean, you know, just talking about you know, noir in general. I mean, it's one of my favourite genres. I know West, you said it was you know, something you're particularly interested in. I mean, do you think it's one of the kind of the greatest examples of the genre? It definitely is. I mean, it's definitely in my top five. Probably the. the the only thing, and now we're going to get into a whole different area, the only thing that really stops it just short of perfection for me is the casting of Charlton Heston as uh, <laughs> as, as Mike Vargas. Uh, I have a personal problem with that, and that is because I am an Hispanic American. And Charlton Heston, look, he's a good actor. You know, he's a great actor, really. I'm not going to try and take anything away from him for that. Uh but the problem here is that, okay, so he's, he's darkened his hair, he's grown a mustache, and he's darkened his mustache, but then he's also put makeup on him to darken his skin. And he is, for want of a better term, he is performing effectively in brownface. Yeah. This does not sit well with me. Like I said, as, as an Hispanic American, it's just it's not something that I can just casually dismiss. I can't walk away from it. I know there's you know, plenty of other people, uh, you know, uh, uh, white viewers and viewers of other ethnicities, maybe that it's not going to be as sensitive an issue for them as it is for me. Uh, but, I mean, look, it's like Ricardo Montalban never existed. You know, what, what <laughs> were they thinking? And, and, yes, I, and I'm not going to hold... Charlton Heston responsible for it. I don't blame him. I don't blame Wells as much as I blame the studio system that thought it would be a great idea to cast Charlton Heston as a Mexican police detective. Because, look, Ricardo Montalban, yeah, he definitely was not as big a name at the time as Charlton Heston, but he was there. He was around, and he is legitimately Hispanic. He could have played that role, and he would have been great in it. And you can't even give me that, like, oh, well, well, they weren't giving uh, starring roles to, to, uh, to Hispanic actors at that time. Well, no, that's not true either, because Ricardo Montalban had the lead role in two other film noirs earlier in uh, the, like the late 40s, uh, early 1950s. He starred in a movie called Border Incident, which is directed by uh, Anthony Mann, and he had the starring role in a, a detective film called Mystery Street, which is directed by John Sturges in 1950. So the guy had experience. Ricardo Montalban had experience in Hollywood films as a leading actor, and he could have done a bang-up job in this movie. It would have been perfect. But that didn't happen. And I think I also have to think that uh, part of the reason for that not happening might have been because the idea of a legitimately Hispanic actor making out with a white girl might not have been as palatable as uh, somebody that we all know is a white guy pretending to be a Mexican guy making out with a white girl. So that's that's always going to be a bit of a sticking point with me. I, I noticed that when I was watching the film this time around, and I mean, I, I went through all three uh, of the, the iterations of Touch of Evil in preparation for this discussion. Uh, I, I could 
I my antipathy towards this thing, my my bitterness, uh, my whatever you want to call it, uh, about it, it, I felt it sort of subsiding a little bit, and I feel like I was really able to just sort of get past it a little bit more this time around than I have in the past. And maybe it's just, you know, I'm, I'm getting older and I'm just accepting more things uh, for what they are and, you know, accept the things you can't change and whatever. But I, I think that I, I can feel sort of, in, a, in an odd way, I can feel my appreciation for this film still, after all these years, still deepening. And, and my little resentment uh, towards uh, Charlton Heston, I, even that I feel is subsiding and I'm able to just more and more appreciate the film just for what it is, which is a, just a, a magnificent film noir. I had the um, kind of the same reaction, not to the same degree, but I felt that it's it's kind of odd having Charlton Heston play a Mexican. Uh, it's just struck me as uh, this doesn't sit quite right with me but I got over it uh, pretty fast but uh, the one problem I have with Heston is that I'm not a big fan of his acting style I feel that he's he chooses very good films to be in but I don't feel that he is the one that elevates the film Um, I kind of have a problem with him every time I see him so yeah oh yeah he's not even remotely my favorite uh, character in the film yeah and is I I obviously I would rank uh Hank Quinlan as a, as a more interesting character and a, and a better performance than than Charlton Heston's. Uh, I love Akeem Tamirov more, and mm. most importantly, I think uh, at least for for this, for this movie is concerned, where the story is where the story is going. I love Joseph Kalia more. Joseph Kalia's performance as Pete Menzies. This is my favorite performance in the film, and, and that's you know, that's saying a lot because you know we've been talking a lot about Orson Welles as Hank Quinlan, and it is like I said, it's one of the great villainous performances in all of film noir, but in some ways, I really feel like Pete Menzies is the soul, the heart and soul of this movie, and which which is all the more tragic because he gets so terribly cut down. I mean, not just literally, but just in terms of his hero worship. And this is the thing that really is, the, uh, for me, it's the most tragic element of the story because you see, as the story goes along, Pete Menzies is just, obviously, he adores Hank Quinlan, he worships yeah. him, and and you see why. And again, this is one of those things that that was cut out of the original theatrical release when when Pete Menzies explains how Hank Quinlan got his limp and why he needs uh, that 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 fateful cane uh, because it was because he took a bullet, he took a bullet for Pete Menzies, and so mm. of course naturally you're gonna you're gonna uh, adore that guy, you're gonna adore the guy who saved your life, but also because he is convinced that. Hank Quinlan is just a, a master detective. You know, he's like a, a border town Sherlock Holmes as far as Menzies is concerned. And as the story goes along, you see that his confidence in his hero is just gradually being chipped away and chipped away by Mike Vargas until eventually he is forced to come to the realization that his hero is not such a great guy, which, of course, you know, sets up the whole third act of the film and the, the whole just terribly uh, tragic finale. To that performance by Joseph Kalia, who's, you know, he's been a fine character actor for a number of years. And, you know, you see him in this movie and you, it's hard to believe that he was once a, a, a very, very handsome guy. I'll, I'll call your attention to a film he did in 1936. It's called After the Thin Man. It was the second in the Thin Man series with William Powell and Myrna Loy. He, Kalia has a supporting role in that film and he's quite a dashing figure, I gotta say, you know, and, and here he's just a balding old guy. Uh, but to see that 
arc of his character going from a guy who is so confident and just so thrilled to just to be in the presence of Hank Quinlan. Just think about that that apartment scene where he's just he's he's so modest and enthusiastic. <laughs> it's like, oh, if that that dynamite had been a snake, it would have bit me. I I love his enthusiasm <laughs> for that song. He's so wonderful. You love this guy, and then to see his downfall just as as the story goes on, it is heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking. And that's that's why I I say that that Pete Menzies that, that Joseph Kalia is the soul of this movie, and. It's it's so that's why it makes it so tough, you know, when you get to the end of this story. It's it's such a such a tough, a tragic thing. Well, he's the collateral damage of the film. That's the, the case. It's it's you know, like you say when when you watch it and he he yeah he's you he, he stuck Quinn up on this kind of pedestal and he, even when he's kind of like trying to kind of get Quinlan to admit to what he's done and you know, to prove that he is this kind of horrible person, it's like you say. You know, deep down, he's just begging for it all not to happen. He doesn't want this to be happening at all. And it's the genius of the film, really, I suppose, is that during those final moments, it's this guy's idol who's being kind of killed in front of him. And he's the person that actually has to do it as well. I think that makes it so much more uh, harsher to take. And I mean, as you were saying... It, it, it affected me again when I was watching it because you, you know this guy's essentially killing his best friend, really, and that's what what I suppose the the, the genius of this screenplay is has how you, you assume that these kind of uh, Vargas and kind of Quinn are going to be the kind of the heart and soul of it. But really, is him. It, it's he is the person who suffers the most perhaps during the entire film. That the one issue that I have with it and that still has never quite really kind of worked for me is the Janet Lee character because I personally find her story to be a little bit of distraction and I find her character to be a little bit stupid and mm. w- what I will go to is you, you have a bomb going off and then you have your husband who's involved in obviously a very serious case that's going through and she just walks off with some strangers does that <laughs> not sit a little bit kind of you know sort of thing hang on love is that such a good idea, really? I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's not the smartest decision she makes in the film. No. <laughs> yeah, there, there is sort and, of and a, then, a clockwork element to it. Like, well, we have to have this person in peril, so let's just put her in this position over here. And hmm. yeah, it, it, it does feel a, a little off. But there are sort of little bits here and there that I think kind of save it. And I think part of it, again, sort of, it, I have to go back to the the, the racial issue. Is it? There is a sort of a, a little slight undercarriage of uh, of racism in this character. Oh, the, there's the, there's the, a lot sorry, of overt the, the, character uh, uh, racism in, in Hank Quinlan. But in Susie, there's just little bits here and there that suggest that she... It suggests to me that she doesn't feel like she's in danger because these people just don't have it together enough to, to mm. put her in danger. You know? It's just this mm. little bits here and there where it's like, you know, oh, I don't want any more postcards. I can't speak Spanish. Oh, lead the way, Poncho. I mean, it's just, <laughs> you know, when she says, oh, you know, I, I just, if I'm going to stay in a, in a motel on the American side, it's just for it's just for comfort, not for safety. What, for comfort? How does that make it any better? What do you say, Mexico doesn't have a pillow? Yeah, I mean, that scene where she calls that guy Poncho, I was like, um, hang on a minute. You know, <laughs> wait there, where's that come from? And yeah, it, I, 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 I see what you mean. I, I think she has this sort of... In a way, she's kind of the victim of her own kind of stupidity in a little bit because 
it, it was quite strange and I'm sort of thinking well you, you've married to a Hispanic guy and now you're calling another Hispanic person Poncho and it, uh, is it because you know she sees people she's a bit of a snob perhaps that was one of the things I was thinking about and it, it, it didn't help me warm to the character at all and the other thing that kind of got me as well was when she's in that, that motel we have that brilliant scene where he calls it and she's just lying there in a lingerie in a so is it I can't pronounce the word look uh, is she wearing a night or is just a lingerie or something like that? She's, and I thought it was quite kind of gratuitous in a way and kind of sort of slightly in keeping with the kind of the sleaziness of the film a little bit. And uh, yeah, it, it's it's a strange character, I think, for sure. I I, I can't quite put my finger... And I'm not sure how deliberate it is. I mean, do you think, yeah, are they really... Yeah, has Orson Welles written her to be a little bit sort of slightly unlikable? I don't know, really. It's it's a strange one. I think, I think that he really is just sort of creating an... Uh, this vast gallery of flawed people. <laughs> there's there's no reason why the ingenue should be any more, you know, any less flawed than everybody else. So I, hmm. I think it's really it's all just in keeping with the the general nature of everybody in this picture. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's such a good point, point because, because you talk about, about kind of Dennis, Dennis Weaver, Weaver as well. I mean. Uh, that, that is hysterical, hysterical that character, character to me he's just absolute crazy guy I mean he's someone who's obviously he knows something very wrong going on and yet he's kind of like questioning his kind of um, job description you know, should he actually be should, should he actually be doing this all the time and it's a yeah, it's a good comic relief I think he had some thoughts about him didn't he yeah I mentioned it earlier with the humour part that he's he's this like this oddball character that you can he serves as kind of comic relief and uh, just his character it, it's been mentioned several times i think on the in several reviews that he's kind of reminiscent of uh, what a psycho would be in uh, the 60s yeah he's he, yeah a nutter running a motel I yeah suppose. yeah it's uh, no it's quite good because i mean i suppose it's kind of a t- time to you know kind of move on as well about this film I, 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 I can't recall anything kind of film from the 50s where we kind of have kind of drugs so kind of blatantly referenced as well. I think it's a very daring film in many respects because um, it's clearly kind of like it, this is a real kind of seedy part of society. And I think that's one of the reasons why perhaps it wasn't quite as kind of people didn't take it. It was because it is quite daring, I think, isn't it? With kind of it's it's the, the sort of the brutality of it almost. You know, these guys are going to go dope her up and they're kind of obviously drug dealers. I mean, do you think it's, it's kind of perhaps that might be one of the problems? It's a little bit kind of ahead of its time in many respects. It probably is. Uh, but also I think that part of the reason why they were able to get away with it is that they took the curse off it by stating at a certain point later on that they did not actually dope up Janet Lee with a lot of you know illegal substances. They gave her what was it, a sodium pentothal or something. It was like the truth serum drug that they're calling it, uh, which that's that's not necessarily something that people are going to look at askance, uh, at least as much as they would say heroin or even pot at, at that time anyway. Uh, so I think by by stating that they didn't really give janet lee's character a lot of you know really you know they didn't get her all hopped up on on horse and whatnot uh i think that by doing that they're sort of skirting the issue they're they're able to bring it up but then they're able to sort of maneuver their way around it so it's it's sort of a way of having your cake and eating it too 
he definitely picks up a joint though, doesn't he, in the motel? Because he sniffs it and he's like, oh my God, and like <laughs> runs out like it's like the worst thing he's ever discovered in his life. I mean, that, that scene kind of made me laugh. And I love the sort of the, 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 the biker look of them as well. You, you could just tell that these people were completely awful. But you know, I can't remember the character's name, but the one who's pretending to run the motel. And it's that kind of that that really sort of kind of it's like when you call speak to a call center and they kind of you're getting a little bit crosser and they kind of go into that monotone kind of let's pacify this person way. And again, I think it sort of helped me sort of not like Janet Lee so much because I just thought to myself, if I was in that situation, I'd be out of that motel in a flash. And it's so obvious that something's going on. And I think that that's one of the things I like about kind of awesome worlds is kind of having fun with the the bad guys. And he's letting them be really really bad. But my my question was as well, who's the person that speaks? to her through the wall as well because i've never been able to kind of put my finger on what that's actually about is that i mean i think it's one of the female characters that come into the room later on but, but why, why would they, they tell, tell her, her? I, I couldn't, couldn't quite, quite work, work that out, out. Like, it, it seemed, seemed a little, little bit off to me, me. i mean, I mean West West Bureau Bureau thoughts on that. i i think they're just kind of toying with her they're just messing around with her mind mm. uh, it's just part of like a a, 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 a psychological thing it just—it's like a, a prelude, to, you know, to, to disorient her before the you know, the main event comes into the room. Uh, I don't really understand it fully myself, but that's just—that's like the the because I, I have thought about it too when I was watching this movie. Well, why? Why are you doing this? And that's the only thing I can think of is they're just—they're just screwing with her. Hmm. Yeah, just being incredibly mean to her. I suppose. I mean, yeah, we we kind of talked about the. the some kind of kind of technical elements, so we're just kind of moving on because this is a film as well, which not only you kind of like you watch, but you also have have to listen to it as well, don't you? The soundscape as well is, I think it's phenomenal what he actually does with the sound in the film. And what are your kind of thoughts on that? Yeah, the the sound is incredibly important in this film. It was something. It was another thing that Wells made a lot of notes on. Uh, the many people have spoken of the uh, the fifty eight page memo that Orson Welles wrote uh, upon given the, the opportunity to see the film as the studio had cut it. There weren't actually very much in the way of, uh, of audio notes in that film, but they were able to track down some notes later on when they were working on the restoration, so they were able to make a lot of changes. It's part of the reason, it's the principal reason, why the, uh, the original opening music by Henry Mancini, who was a staff composer at Universal at the time, that music is no longer in that opening shot of of the movie, which is that that's one thing I gotta say that I do miss in the restored version because I like that music very much and mm. it was also it was also very clever uh, the, the the way that uh, Mancini set that up because you know of course the first thing you see is uh, the the bomb being set and the timer starts ticking and then the guy puts it in the trunk and then when the music starts you know in the 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 earlier versions of the film not the restored version but when the music starts the first thing that Henry Mancini does is he cranks up the uh, the percussion. To, to simulate the ticking of the bomb because now you know the, the, the camera's moving away from the bomb you can't hear it anymore so the, when he starts with the music the first thing you hear is the percussion before the rest of the uh, the, the, the band starts in it's it's a very clever way of reminding you that there is a time bomb and it is going to go off but that was not what Wells wanted what he wanted was just a, a lot of sound uh, just a lot of sound from the atmosphere itself, from radios and, and storeways and, and the cat houses and that the, the camera was passing by, you would just hear this panorama of sound from the surrounding area. It's part of the way of immersing you in this world, which I understand, and it makes a lot of sense, and it is very effective, but I just still miss that music. Yeah, I would agree that I like the music, but I feel that the 
the scene is more effective without the music but I, I really do enjoy the music but the way it is without the music it, it reminds me of uh, later merged films as The Conversation and American Graffiti where everywhere you move the, the sound is uh, diegetic so it follows where the camera is that's the sound we will hear so when you move from building to building and through different conversations the, the sound will float in and out and just hear a radio through an open window and you can hear music from the nightclub and that is one of the things that is greatly improved in the reconstructed version I feel that this atmosphere that is created is is just so more poignant in the reconstructed version I feel you can feel that the danger that is in the air that it's just so mo much more prevalent in the reconstructed version yeah and the sound design is important if because of all the overlapping dialogue that's in the movie mm. you, you need to be able to make out what everybody is saying and when more than one person is speaking at the same time then it becomes even more of an imperative to make sure that you know exactly what you're listening to and where it's coming from so and oh that's another weird note about that as far as that sort of thing is concerned is that uh, you know in the opening scene when you see this you know there's a cameo appearance by joseph cotton in the movie he's uncredited but you, you if if you familiar with him you know it's him and that opening scene where that he's examining the the body of uh, Rudy Lineker, and you hear him say, "Oh, and now you can strain him through a sieve." That's not him. That's Orson Welles dubbing that line. Mm. Right. I never knew that. It's interesting that we're we're talking about many of these bold and like striking film techniques, but the the film is also filled with these more subtle techniques, like when uh, Heston is uh, he's pursued by this young Mexican, and the Mexican, he, he throws acid towards Heston, but Heston is able to kind of leap sideways and it hits this picture of a woman behind him because everything that is aimed at Heston throughout the film, it hurts his wife instead. Like she's the one that is getting attacked and she's the one that is getting abducted and he's really the target of all this. And I feel like that's... Wells's brilliant direction of the film that everything just everything has meaning and nothing is irrelevant or arbitrary in this film yeah, well it's not just his wife it's just co the notion of collateral damage in general is it, mm. it's like I said you know uh, the whole issue of Hank Quinlan continually fabricating evidence to get innocent people put away. The whole notion that uh, Pete Menzies has to be, uh, you know, killed in the line of duty is so that uh, they can they, they can stop Hank Quinlan from doing what he's doing. The the notion that Uncle Joe Grandy, who is just basically a, a low level criminal thug, and and somehow ends up, you know, he he ends up getting embroiled in this thing and he suffers a terrible fate. And the thing is, the woman on the poster who gets that's the woman who gets blown up in the car in the opening scene of the film. Ah, I, I never that. ever got that. No. no, she's one of the strip teasers. It's uh, you know one of the characters, uh, Ray Collins, who plays the DA, and he's another guy who's worked with Orson Welles a lot. He was uh, uh, boss Jim Geddes in Citizen Kane. Uh, yeah, he he points out that she was one of the strip teasers, and she and that's that's who uh, Rudy Lineker is getting in the car with, and that's why there's a poster of her on the wall because it's a big deal that she's uh, she's dancing at this place. But I feel like the film is uh, when you pointed that out. I feel that it is filled with these parallel stories and like Vargas it's not it's not entirely inconceivable that 20 years from now he could be like a Quinlan because he becomes disillusioned by everything that happens throughout the film that it's not uh, you could imagine that in 20 years from now he would be fabricating evidence to get someone convicted well I think the brilliance actually of the film is that you can't tell for a lot of time what, what's Mexico and where's America 
I don't think it's that blindingly clear. They both look the same. They both the kind of you know it's, the, the the town for one kind of blends into one really. And I think it does have that ambiguity of you know what who, who, what side is the law on? Literally, hmm. whose jurisdiction are they in? It, it does get blurred. Does he get killed in the Mexican? Does Frank die in the? Mexican side of things in the end, or is it in America? I can't quite seem to remember. No, Hank is killed. In, Quinlan dies on the Mexican side. Yeah, and and that that that's that's what I'm kind of you know, kind of trying to get at really is that where these kind of crimes are taking place because really Vargas he's got almost no business being involved in this side. I mean, you know, he kind of starts going through the um you know, the previous cases, and you're kind of wondering where his kind of jurisdiction to do that actually comes from. I know he says, you know, I'm just an observer, but he's still. Uh, you know, they, they they kind of go across the border with kind of there's no difference in their kind of roles really. It's quite a strange film in that respect. It's I don't know if it's it, that that's kind of intentional that there's this kind of blurring of you know literally a blurring of the border. You know, is it kind of suggesting that kind of corruption and evil is something which is it's it's out there. It doesn't matter what kind of side of the border it is. It's kind of this kind of worldwide problem. I don't know. I, I to me it, it it kind of made the whole thing seem a lot more ambiguous. Well, that's one of the lines that Charlton Heston says to to Janet Lee is that you know border towns bring out the worst, and that's the it it's true on both sides of the border. You you, you can't you can't say that everything is uh, spotless and squeaky clean on one side, and and the other side is just uh, corruption and decay and disease. Uh, it, clearly, it's it applies to both sides. I think part of it that helps to to make that case is that it was all shot in the same city, at least as far as the exteriors are concerned. The interiors were shot at the, the Universal Studio. But all the exteriors were shot over here in a city uh, by the, uh, the Pacific called Venice, Venice, California. Uh, it's, it's definitely a lot more cleaned up now than it was then. It's now it's more of an upscale kind of bohemian uh, area. But back then, you know, th- there were a lot of oil derricks and all that architecture that you see in the, the, the street scenes. Uh, some of that is still there. Some of those arches, they're, they're still around today. If you go down to Venice, you will see them, and you'll instantly go, well, I know that. Uh, the oil derricks are long gone, but they've been ar- they were around for a while. In fact, uh, you can when Jacques Demy uh, came to America to do his first movie in, in, in English in the United States, it was like 1968-69, he did a movie, it was called Model Shop with uh, Gary Lockwood, which is available, I think, here in America it is, at least. And I would recommend it because it's a very good movie. Um, that is probably Model Shop has perhaps the best representation of what Los Angeles looked like in the late 1960s in any Hollywood movie I've ever seen. Every other Hollywood movie it, it looks a lot more glitzier and glossier and glamorous and other things that begin with glue. But in <laughs> Model Shop it really looks like Los Angeles and there are large portions of it that were shot around Venice and they still had a lot of those oil derricks around at the time. Uh, a lot of that stuff is gone now. But back then, it, it, it really, I mean, not necessarily to the degree that there were a lot of newspapers and stuff flying around, but in the, the canal, the, the, the canals of Venice, I mean, the, the, there was definitely a lot of pollution in the water. When, when Orson Welles went down there in the end to, to sort of wash the blood off his hands, he was, he was genuinely and legitimately worried about getting typhus. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that yeah. setting both ends of the border, both sides of the border, he's, all of that stuff takes place... All of it is shot in one city, in the same city, in Venice, California. I think that also sort of helps to reinforce that sort of disorienting notion that I don't know if I'm in Mexico, I don't know if I'm in the United States. It all just blurs together. 
And I, I love the look of the city as well, because you have these incredible signs everywhere that are very visually eye-grabbing, like this this Mexico sign. Not only that, but you have also the, um, the, the Jesus Saves sign, and you have uh, nightclub signs everywhere, and bullfighter posters, and matador photos everywhere, and... I, and even in the scene where Vargas is calling from a shop, there's a sign behind him. I think it says that if you can steal from buying people, be my guest. And it just everything, uh, it, it comments on the film, I feel, but it just creates this reality in the film. It, it's like you can feel, you can feel the, you can feel the, you can feel the city, basically. It just, it's another indicator of the, the sure directorial hand of Orson Welles. I mean, he's just, he is so in command of his mise-en-scene, if you mm. will, that, that he, you, you just feel so immersed in the atmosphere of this film. It, well, it goes back to, I think, one of the reasons why I enjoyed it so much. That kind of night I watched it because it was stiflingly hot and I was watching this kind of stiflingly hot film. And you feel, yeah, the atmosphere permeates from the screen and you know, that those oil pumps or what have you it, it's this sort of yeah it's this pre well kind of like post-industrial kind of hell hole and that water at the end it's funny she mentioned that because when i was watching it, i thought oh god that looks absolutely awful what brilliant <laughs> art direction and yeah as you say it's, it's actually real i think that makes it even more kind of sickening and it's really it's the perfect location for this horrible nasty story which is, is what it is i i, I think such of evil is you know, like this kind of the the, the name of the, the the film suggests it. It's it's a really horrible, nasty tale, and the fact that Wells is made is actually able to make it so entertaining and the characters so interesting. I think yeah, like I say, it's a testament to his kind of genius. I mean, I just want to move on now, really, to kind of talk about the kind of the the, the different versions of this film because. I, I, th- I would just like to mention that I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention like Russell Metty as the cinematographer and just the yeah, incredible, yeah, no, good point, yeah. incredible lighting and the dark shadows that he creates. It adds incredibly much to this film noir feel and he's just an unsung hero for this film, I feel. Definitely. Uh, Russell Metty is, I think he's a really good example of the downside of the Hollywood studio system because... Clearly, you see his work here, and you can tell that this is a this is a guy who really knows his stuff. He knows what he's doing. He's a great cinematographer. But if you look at his filmography, there are dozens and dozens of nondescript, run-of-the-mill movies. Uh, you know, like the thing that couldn't die, and uh, the Platinum High School, uh, Flower Drum Song, that touch of Mink. There's fairly pedestrian, ordinary movies. But then you look at the, the there's a specific little handful of films that he did with some really great directors. There's people, clearly, they knew what he was worth and they knew what he could do and they used that to their advantage. And specifically, because this is a guy who worked at almost his whole life in the, the Hollywood studio system under contract for Universal. And so and this is the thing with a lot of people in the studio systems that you go where they tell you to go and they do what you, they, they tell you to do. And mm. But he did three films with Douglas Sirk. Okay, he did Written on the Wind, All That Heaven Allows, and Cirque's uh, last film, uh, Imitation of Life. All of these are wow. absolutely beautiful, beautiful Technicolor cinematography. That's mm. this guy. In 1960, he did Spartacus for Stanley Kubrick. He won the Academy Award for color cinematography for that movie. And then in 61, he did, uh, what was it, uh, The Misfits with John Huston, 
which is uh, back to black and white, but it's it's another really great movie. So you can see that there are some there in the hands of a great director, in the hands of somebody who knows what he's capable of. Russell Meddy can work wonders, but then you have all these other, you know, sort of run of the mill contract guys who just, well, this is, this is the job that you're assigned to. So, you know, just, you know, point the camera there and give me this. And Mm. it's, it's, and it's a real shame because obviously the, we're looking at somebody, you see just that, that handful of films that I mentioned, here is somebody who really could have had just an astounding career in cinematography. And it's not like, you know, it's not like he didn't do anything because like I said, he did dozens and dozens of movies. So he kept his hand in, but in terms of being able to just really stretch out artistically and really show people what he was capable of, unfortunately within the Hollywood studio system, that was kind of stifled for, for Russell Meddy. And it's a real shame. It's interesting that touch of evil, it's kind of held up as this corollary to the auteur theory uh, that Truffaut had, where American studios to just fail to understand all of the the working power that they had, the genius that they had working for them, and the, like they made everyone go through the system, as you said. And th- this is just a, a perfect example of how the auteur theory is relevant. And Orson Welles in particular is a guy who knew the value of his collaborators. I mean, you go back to his first film. You notice that that final title card in Citizen Kane, he shares that card with his cinematographer, Greg Toland, because mm. the guy taught him so much. And he, Wells is a guy who is willing to acknowledge that. Yeah, he's the ultimate in collaborative filmmakers, isn't it? You know, it's, it, it, a film just isn't one person. It's a, you know, it's in a variety of elements, and when they're all kind of work, I mean, you know, when they're all kind of hit, hitting form, as it were, you, you do get kind of you tend to get the kind of the best films. I mean, I'm, I'm currently working on um, something sort of on the waterfront, and there's not a, a you know the dialogue's perfect, the cinematography's perfect, the direction's perfect, and they all kind of come together. And like you say, West, I think Orson Welles is someone who kind of he he understands that fully, and I, I suppose. It's it's what makes him kind of stand out, like you say, from the kind of the the, the Hollywood dross. I mean, I'm just looking at you know um, Russell Metty's uh, filmography, and in 1942 he's got something like five six credits, and you wonder where the kind of the individuality came. And when you watch Touch of Evil, like you say, I, I think it does make it seem that a little bit more special as to how visually striking and brilliant this film is. And obviously you can tell that Orson Welles has, has listened to him as well and has kind of taken his advice because there's some of the shots in there that I, I think only a cinematographer would know could exist and he gets them every time. And he, I've taken some kind of screen grabs off the film and I was kind of thinking of kind of turning it into kind of like a collage or something like Because I think, although it is kind of dirty and horrible looking, I still think it's it's a pretty beautiful film in many respects. Not only that, Russell Metty contributes an immense amount, but you can also feel that Wells has his print on the film as well with the, the incredible low angle shots of the ceilings. But uh, yeah, the uh, the contribution of Metty is uh, incredible. Yeah, I should also mention, I... I... I would be remiss if I did. He did work on a couple of other Douglas Sirk films. I'll mention Magnificent Obsession, which is another really great one with uh, with Rock Hudson. And, but also, they this is not even his first collaboration with Orson Welles because they also worked together on The Stranger. So there's there's another film noir from the past for you. I don't think I actually think I've seen The Stranger. Actually, I think I might have to kind of ch- check that out. But I have kind of a, a policy when it comes to when when a, when multiple versions of a film exist. If I know, in the case of someone like Orson Welles, if I know that there's the kind of the butchered version you could see, 
or the kind of the, the, this this reconstruction version. I tend not to bother watching the kind of the, the butchered versions. It's a bit like Blade, where I don't want to watch the producer's cut of that. I wouldn't say the final cut's my favourite one. I'm quite happy with the director's cut that came out in the, the early nineties, whenever. But I've not actually been through all the different cuts of Touch of Evil because my kind of philosophy is: if I want to watch Touch of Evil, I want to watch the one which is perhaps closest to how kind of awesome Wells imagined it. And I think kind of you guys are probably a little bit better because there was this fifty-eight page memo, which I, it's a fantastic read in its own right. Um, um, it, I'm, I'm, it's kind of a tragic, really, and it, 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 the fact that he wrote it and he's, he's managed to be so eloquent and so kind of civil to people. I, I think it's incredible, the, bearing in mind you know, kind of what he's been through, and the fact that the, this version, the version I saw the film, kind of it, it begins with these kind of last few sentences of it. But I mean, what are your kind of thoughts on these other versions? I think it's kind of where you need to kind of like come and kind of give me a bit of prompting because it, it has kind of been through all these different versions. And I, I, are you satisfied that this reconstruction is the best way to see it? Well, yeah, I I think I'm pretty sure it is. I'm just my again my one quibble is just the the, the opening music, uh, but that's that's not such a big deal. Uh, ultimately, it, you know, we take it as a whole. I think that the restored version, and it's important to note that we refer to it as a restored version, not as a director's cut, because it's not like, you know, this is this is just what we got as a result of people working with from the wells's 58 page memo it's not necessarily entirely reflective of what he might have done completely and utterly if he had been given his his way in in post-production the restored version i think is definitely the best version and like i said i had never even seen the original like 95 minute theatrical version until they released it with the 50th anniversary dvd and it's kind of startling how messy it is and how they just left out so much important information and then there's other little things here and there that uh, just make the movie a lot better by just cutting out little things here and there and adding things of course you know because the, the finished mm. film is like a, uh, what is it 15 almost 20 minutes longer uh, certainly is knowing why Pete Menzies loves Hank Quinlan so much for you know taking that bullet for him and why you know Hank Quinlan limps and all that. I mean that's that's an incredibly important detail that you you want to know that it's it, it's frustrating that it, it's not in the original theatrical cut. You're just thinking that people watching this movie in 1958 have no idea why at the end of the movie, uh, you know Orson Welles steps up to the, in, in, in close up and says, "Oh, that's another bullet I took for you." But it's like, well, we don't know why. <laughs> that's it's just it's such a stupid decision on the part of the studio and so f being able to have the this uh this restoration which i was lucky enough to see in the theaters when they released it theatrically back in the late 90s um it's it's fantastic it really does just make the movie better because when you look at it the, the theatrical release definitely there you can still appreciate all the great performances you can appreciate the brilliant camera work and all of that but the story now works better in the restored version. And so, hmm. you know, that's uh, for me anyway, I, I think that that makes a lot of difference. And I think it would make a lot of difference for people who are just coming to this movie. I think you definitely wouldn't want to start them off with a theatrical version because they probably have the same reaction that I did. And they might just think, well, this is just stupid. I'm never going to watch this movie again. Hey, you don't want that. You want people to come back to it again and again. I, I had the same experience with director's cut that you have Tom, where I feel that if a director has a version that he stands fully behind. That is my preferred version usually. But I I did check out the 93-minute version that is available on the Masters of Cinema Blu-ray and it is quite messy and it is 
it has i think i think it it has a certain flow and if you know the story you're not as miffed by it but if you come into that as your first experience i think you would be you would be wondering what happened but it is interesting that touch of evil was actually released as the the b movie of a double bill with the female animal which is directed by harry keller which is the director that reshot some of the scenes for touch of evil and we don't know either if this happened because wells didn't know it or if this happened because wells refused to uh, return to do further work on the film but just to give a, a little bit of a background information for people who don't know the complete history of the different versions uh, Wells, he was invited to look at this um, original cut that came out in 1958 and he then wrote a 58-page memo to the other production, Ed Mule, and uh, many of these suggestions that he had, they went unheeded, so it was released in a 93-minute um, edition. And then in 1976, Universal, they discovered that they held a 108-minute print in their archives, and they released that in cinemas because there was a growing interest from uh, cineasts all around the world, and it was then billed as the complete uncut and restored version but that was actually not a restoration but just a preview version between Wells's memo and the release version and uh, as you mentioned West early on there is actually no director's cut of this because the rough cut that Wells submitted it no longer exists. After the 76 version we have this restoration that we keep talking about where Walter Murch, the editor, and I think he directed one film, but he's also uh, worked as a sound uh, producer on several films. He re-edited it based on the memo, uh, along with uh, Bob O'Neill from Universal and Bill Varney from Universal, and also critic Jonathan Rosenbaum, which is quite interesting that they included a critic to contribute in this restoration of uh, the memo version. So the biggest changes that were made is that there are no music and credits in the opening shot, as we said. And there's also a lot more cross-cutting between the main story and Janet Lee's subplot in the restored version. How do you feel that works, West, compared to the original version? Because when I watched the original version today, I wasn't as confused as some of the critics online claim they were. I think that maybe because I had so much experience with the uh, the other versions that it wasn't as confusing for me either. I mean, mm. Having seen it numerous times, I, I knew what the story was about. I knew where it was going to go. So yeah. there's really no amount of cross-cutting in any of the versions that was really going to phase me. So I, I don't I don't have a problem with that. I, I I can understand some people coming to it for the first time. Yeah, that's that's part of the thing. If they if they're coming at the theatrical version first, they're going to have problems. And mm. the problems are largely remedied by the restored version. The preview version actually makes a lot more sense, too. But the restored version is as close to perfect as you're going to get. Because there are, apart from taking out the uh, the, the titles and, and the music from the opening sequence, also there are several scenes that are restored. But then there are also just little bits here and there. That uh, that even I wasn't entirely aware of until you know, they were they were brought to my attention. I'll call everybody's attention to one right now. I have a there's a book 
by uh, I, I'm I know I'm gonna mess up this name, and it's Michael Ondaatje. I believe that's how it's pronounced. He is the guy who wrote the novel The English Patient, which was then, of course, uh, turned into a movie by Anthony Minghella. Walter Murch worked on that film, and he won Oscars mm. for the editing and for the sound. And Michael Ondaatje eventually he went to interview Walter Murch, and they had several lengthy conversations. And the book is called The Conversations: Walter Murch mm. and the Art of Editing Film, and. If you know anything at all about Walter Murch, you know that he's somebody you want to listen to at all times and everywhere. So <laughs> when this book came out, uh, I immediately snatched it up because it's for me, it's as important a book as uh, the Truffaut Hitchcock book, as the uh, Billy Wilder Cameron Crowe book. To me, it's, it's that significant because Walter Murch is so good at his job and he is so knowledgeable. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a little bit, if I may, from this book. This is Walter Murch explaining... One very tiny but incredibly crucial cut in, in the film, which I hadn't noticed before until I had read the book, and it, it really helps so much. Okay, so what he says is this. It's about, it's about removing a close-up. Orson Welles mentioned in the memo that it was a little close-up that he wanted removed in the, the scene between Menzies and Vargas in the, the big filing cabinet room where uh, Vargas is, is sort of slowly building up his case against Hank Quinlan. Mm. Uh, so... It says it's about a close, a little close-up. Uh, the close-up in question occurs in a scene between Vargas and Menzies at the crucial moment where Vargas has confronted Menzies with evidence of Quinlan's duplicity. Menzies, who has been standing, collapses, and his agony is revealed in this close-up. Almost instantly, he jumps back to his feet and defends Quinlan, but the damage has been done. Vargas has seen him acknowledge the truth, and just as important, Menzies has seen Vargas see this. As a result, everything that Menzies does in the last half hour of the film is done under duress, not authentically because he believes it to be best, but because he must, having revealed his weakness to Vargas. Menzies has a metaphorical leash around his neck. By cutting out this close-up, we also cut the leash. He never collapses in the scene with Vargas, continuing to defend his boss to the end. But we, not Vargas, see the doubt and anguish on his face. Vargas does not see it because of the staging of the scene. Everything that Menzies does from that moment on, and he plays a crucial role in the undoing of his boss, is done authentically. He chooses to do it rather than being coerced. This increases the standing of Menzies' character in the film, raising it to a level of equality with v Vargas and Quinlan. Wells has elsewhere described Touch of Evil as a story of love and betrayal between two men, Menzies and his boss Quinlan. The removal of Menzies' close-up plays a significant part in realizing this vision for the film. Mm. Now, I, I think that's just incredibly perceptive, not just on the, the part of Walter Murch, but on the part of Orson Welles, that taking out that one little close-up of, uh, of Menzies really strengthens that character in a great way, because it he's absolutely right. They're both absolutely right, that you want Menzies to really sort of stand up on his own and confront directly the, the the what his boss has been doing all these years you, you don't you wouldn't want it to feel like he's sort of being forced to do it by Vargas because that that doesn't make either of those guys any better as human beings so mm. I think that by, by removing that close-up yeah that they're right Menzies becomes more of an uh, in, in many ways he becomes more of a tragic figure it's extremely effective in the scene where uh, Susie's uh, he, she's in the jail she's resting after she's been saved uh, from the motel and 
Vargas then takes Menzies aside. They go to this kind of hallway and there's this low shot. And this is where Menzies, he, as you said, he's choosing to uh, turn on Quinlan. Uh, in the other in the other cut, it, it's just kind of, he doddles along. It, it doesn't feel like he's making that stance and he's making that choice. So uh, that is very, it, it changes his entire character for uh, the film, yeah. Well, I mean, it just shows the power of a single cut, doesn't it? You know, these tiny little things that seem so sort of incidental have massive impact. And, you know, why... The stories of directors flying into rage and kind of disowning films, they're quite common, aren't they? You know, it does happen a lot. And I suppose when you have such a kind of clear creative vision and people start kind of playing around with it, it's yeah, it must be heartbreaking because when you can see what is best for something and someone else is kind of arbitrarily deciding what isn't. And in the case of... of of Wells, I think he's he, he suffered. He seems to have suffered so badly from this type of tinkering from people who just simply don't get what what it is he's trying to do. And I I wonder what what was their intention when they were kind of butchering these films? What were they trying to make it do? Because I mean, I'm, I'm presuming. I mean, the, the films they, they they must sort of seem tonally at least they must be kind of almost the same really I and mean, they must be kind of still quite dark depressing films what are they trying hoping to turn them into i just don't get why people feel the need to kind of meddle like this yeah either they thought that they could somehow make the story more clear which is clearly they failed or they yeah. thought that they were trying to make the movie more entertaining somehow more palatable to a to a mass audience uh but obviously that didn't work out either which is why they ended up it ended up on the bottom of a double bill there's a lot of expository um, lines in the original cut that are entirely unnecessary. And it's like the, the most famous scene is the hotel lobby scene that Harry Keller shot, which is uh, just an entire conversation between Susie and Vargas explaining what has happened and what they are going to do next. So there's a lot of things that just to explain more and remove some ambiguity through the film. Yeah, and I mean, like, like, like I said, really. I mean, West. I mean, you, you, what, what, what? I mean, what, what's your kind of like? You know, if, if you're going to watch this film, what one are you going to go to? And what, under what circumstances, other than kind of appearing on a podcast about it, would you watch the other versions of it? Yeah, the the only reason I watched the other versions uh, recently was because of this uh, podcast. <laughs> Normally, yeah, yeah. I, I would definitely never watch the theatrical cut again unless. You know, I was doing it for something like this or just, you know, for for academic purposes or just to show somebody, well, this is how these people screwed this up. So take a look. That's the only reason for watching the theatrical cut. Um, Then the only more or less, it's kind of the same thing, uh, except a little less, uh, less bitter for the uh, the the preview version, because it it is definitely leagues better than the theatrical cut. But there are still, you know, like the the close up of Menzies that I referred to that that's still in the uh the the preview version so it's you're going to watch it purely for comparative purposes for academic purposes really you want to go with the restored version and like i said although i i don't mind the in the least the the titles being removed from the opening sequence but although i i loved uh, henry mancini's music well you know i have it in my computer i can play it whenever i want so yeah, the, the just... you want to watch the the restored version it is by far the, the best way to look at touch of evil and I mean, from a purely kind of 
cinema history point of view although I, I, I kind of I'm more inclined to kind of just watch the one which is kind of genuinely accepted as, as, as the version to see. I think it's good that films, that these versions do exist. The same kind of thing that happened with Brazil, because like you say, for completist reasons and for academic reasons, you can you can see different filmmakers' intent and what 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 they were trying to do and how kind of people have meddled with it. And I think it, it's a good thing. I mean, it's a pity you know, George Lucas doesn't sort of have those versions of Star Wars out there. You know, that I, I would love a box set that had every single version of Star Wars that's ever come out. Unfortunately, you know, we have to cling on to our kind of like, say, your, your laser discs and your your special edition DVDs. I, I, it's, I'm glad that uh, Master Cinema have put them out because you, you, you can see... I, in a way, it kind of you, you can see the genius of Wells and what he's trying to do, and you know really why he was right all along. And that, well, certainly it's so it's not it's not the director's cut, but as close to his vision as possible is actually out there. I mean, is there anything else you want to kind of add, Joachim, to any of that? Um, the daughter of Wells, Beatrice Wells. Do you know anything about her, um, West? Uh, because she, the she things that I know about much... her are not pleasant. Yeah. So I mean, it's weird. So. You know, I, I, I was I'm glad you brought this up because I, I wasn't even really sure how to approach this because it seems to me like with the children of other filmmakers, you know, like with like George Stevens Jr., for instance, is a really good example of the opposite approach. Is that George Stevens Jr. really seems to at all times and everywhere want everyone to appreciate his father's work and see it in the best possible light. Whereas, in contrast, it really seems to me like Beatrice Wells seems to have dedicated herself to preventing anybody from enjoying Orson Welles anywhere at any time. <laughs> I, I honestly, I don't know why, if it has something to do with uh, financial considerations. I don't know if it's that they didn't get along when he was alive. I don't know what the heck is going on there. But it seems like, you know, she is constantly just stepping in between his work and our appreciation of it. I mean, I remember in, just in regards with this film, when it was originally released on DVD here in the States, it was just one disc and it was just the restored version. There was supposed to be a, uh, a 20 minute featurette and there was supposed to be a commentary track. And she just stepped in with her lawyers and said, nope, can't do that. And they weren't, they, they didn't appear on there. We didn't get anything. We just, well, you know, we got the movie, we got a trailer, and that's about it. Uh, for the 50th anniversary, we did get those things that were originally supposed to be on the, the original DVD. Because there's, there's a commentary track, uh, that, which I believe you also have on the Masters of Cinema edition, with the producer of the restoration, Rick Schmidlin, and also Charlton Heston and Janet Lee. Were, mm. uh, took part and you know by the time we got that commentary track in 2008 both of those actors were dead so clearly this is something that had been sitting around for a long time and we just couldn't we couldn't get to uh, enjoy and appreciate it because Beatrice Wells just came in and, and put the kibosh on it and I don't know why I mean she's done the same thing uh, she she's been doing these same obstructionist activities with uh, uh, Othello. There's uh, apparently there's there's a whole controversy about multiple versions of Othello, and she is only letting anybody look at one version. And there's supposedly another version that uh, I guess some people consider superior, and she won't let anybody have it. I think it seems like she's doing it for financial reasons because every time someone alters her her father's work or they are trying to show an uh, alternate version she threatens litigation and they usually settle out of court so it seems to be her income these days that she wasn't the reason she claims is that she wasn't consulted for the restorations but uh, i don't know 
Yeah, I mean, I, I smell money in this one. Yeah. I wonder if perhaps, you know, that you know, Daddy got sort of screwed out and by all accounts, I think he was fairly penniless when he died, wasn't he? I wonder if she's kind of trying to sort of retrospectively kind of you know, cash in and get the money that she, you know, she thinks that he deserves. It is sad when these types of things happen because, yeah, it's at the end of the day, it's you just wonder why, you know, why if, if, if it was my father, I would want everyone to kind of, you know, appreciate what he had done and kind of enjoy what he had done and she I've only read a few things about and she does kind of come across as a a, a bit of a class A bitch to be honest with you and it's just sort of it, it, it seems you know Orson Welles I think he's someone who I think he's too important to cinema to kind of be lost in kind of petty little legal battles and things like that and it's yeah it's a shame that you know we're not that she is that kind of blocker there sort of stopping the, the, these works from getting out but I mean anything else have we kind of got you know got to add on to the sort of the, the version side of things we could probably start talking about aspect ratio uh, even yeah, though this West Ham yeah, West, you haven't uh, seen it in 137 ratio, have you? I've only ever seen the uh, preview version uh, in that aspect ratio. Because, once again, that was something that I had on Laserdisc for a number of years. Mm. And it was it was in the sort of standard, at that time, standard Academy ratio. Uh, so that's I'm, I'm familiar with that, although even that one I haven't seen for a very long time. All three of the versions that you have uh, here in America on the 50th uh, anniversary DVD... Uh, they're all formatted in 185. So mm. I haven't seen any of these versions in 133, and uh, there's two of them I, have, I haven't seen ever, and then the, the preview version I haven't seen in 133 in a long, long time. Where do you fall on it, Tom? Yeah, I, I'm i a big believer in I want to see it as close to the original as I possibly can, and I actually watched it this morning. The first time I got this Master Cinema version, I watched the 185 version. I went and watched it in the 137 version um, today, and I, I much preferred that. I felt like it was... Um, um, I, I preferred the framing a lot more. I, I, I do like that, that, that frame in general. I... I as, as much as I kind of like love big widescreen cinema, it's... I, I still have a kind of a... a an, an affection for that framing and I, to me I, I felt that was the, the way I will in the future when I go back to this film that is how I'm going to watch it I, I am a little I'm always a little bit um, hesitant when you when they kind of start mucking around with ratios and making them for widescreen televisions I mean obviously we kind of had the the, the, the awful pan and scan times and in a way when I think they kind of try and stretch these things to fit widescreen I I do feel that um, I feel a little bit uncomfortable sometimes when it's done well. You, you can barely notice, but at the back of my mind, I'd, I'd rather have the option. I think that's if you're going to do it. I mean, the um, I think it's a Criterion version of, of Paths of Glory. I was watching. That's another one that's been kind of you know filled out for the screen. And I was sort of thinking, do you know what? I really wish you'd just give me the, the original as well. And um, yeah, I, yeah, I. I'm going to go for the 137 version in future. I think that's the, the, definitely the way I, I, I appreciated it the most, seeing it like that. What about yourself? Yeah, because Wells, he shot the film with a full frame in mind, but there, uh, it was meant to be released both in the theatrical, also the TV. So he had he had to have both ratios in mind when he was shooting it but i feel that the 137 to 1 ratio it it just feels more i feel more comfortable watching it and maybe that works against the the feeling of the film because it's a very claustrophobic film and i feel that the 185 uh, aspect ratio it it really works for that uh, type of um 
uh, mood where you can you can you can feel its strengths uh, on that side but just the 137 it has more breathing room and it, it doesn't leave too much on the sides because in the 185 i feel that there's a lot of emptiness on the, the sides of the frame so and i i really uh, like you said tom i i have an uh, affection for that ratio as well and yeah um i i i really like the 137 ratio and it just also the when wells shoots low angle you get you just get more of the ceiling and i just love that that angle that he uses and the more height you have in those shots the better they work i feel yeah and i mean it's like like i said really it's just to reiterate it's it's what it's, it's how it was originally intended it's like the sound as well we've discussed this before you know if it was if it was the film was released in mono just give me a nice clear mono soundtrack don't give me sort of this fake five one stuff that seems to be the the in thing to do and um you know luckily they've done that as well on, on this disc it's just mm. that kind of you know single mono track well that's how it was released that's good enough for me you know clear up those kind of popping or whatever the hissing or something like that just give me what was there um i suppose a good enough time is really to talk about the kind of the package in general because i think personally this is possibly the best release master cinema have ever actually done what's your kind of thoughts on it yeah i think i had this on my top three list when we started our first episode uh, just uh, the immense amount of commentaries. You have four commentaries on here, and uh, it's especially interesting listening to the critic uh, commentary with Jonathan Rosenbaum and uh, James Nairmore. Uh, but also, just uh, Schmidlin's uh, solo track is incredibly. Just you can feel that he's such a geek in cinema, and his his love and affection for this film it, it kind of oozes over the soundtrack in. You also have the two very informative featurettes that um, one of them goes into an interview with Heston and Lee and the other one goes into more of the background history of the production and uh, between the different um, the different versions. Yeah, And the booklet also, uh, I think it's over 60 pages and uh, lots of good, uh, good writing in there. Yeah, yeah, the book is pretty fantastic. Yeah, it's, it, it, I'm, I'm, I'm reading it. Right. My, my particular favorite comedy is the one with Charles Heston and Janet Lee. Is that the one you've got on your version? Yes, as I said, I think I mentioned this, but your Masters of Cinema version has pretty much all of the same extra the, the little bonus documentaries. I have all the commentary tracks and I've listened to all of them. Actually, I would have to say that uh, the one with Charlton Heston and Janet Lee is my least favorite, uh, just because... Ooh, I would agree. <laughs> yeah, just Unfortunately, there's... And this isn't just... It's not because uh, they're you know they're old or anything like that. This is just something that some people do, and it's not just actors either. There's some directors, like, I mean, William Friedkin has been guilty of this on a couple of tra- uh, commentary tracks, is it? Where they just start lapsing into telling you oh well and now here is this scene where this person is coming in the door and now he's talking to this person well look i've seen this movie <laughs> you don't have to tell me what's going on not, not only that but i'm watching it right now while you're talking about it <laughs> don't don't tell me what they're well, doing I, I can see what they're doing tell me how you got them to do it tell you know that's the stuff that we're listening for and unfortunately that's the thing that that you know charlton heston in particular sort of you know lapses into that kind of thing and uh, it's just it's it's frustrating i i I, I really that's one of those things that really just it's a commentary track killer for me 
I think the worst example I have of that is John Milius and Arnold Schwarzenegger on the Coney. Yeah. That is <laughs> yeah, hilarious. Yeah. That, is, that is tragic. That it is pretty bad. Well, what I like about the the, the, the Hester the, the, the commentary is that you find out a few like anecdotes, like kind of just really, I mean, you know, let's, let's kind of get something that way first. I mean, I think... I, I don't know, I might be jumping the gun here, but I, I would probably say West, you're probably not a kind of Republican. Yeah, that's 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 a pretty good assumption. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think, I, uh, and I think probably uh, uh, Heston is probably kind of the worst types of um, right-wing Americans, but on that, on that, on the uh, the the commentary, I think he he does come across as someone who really cared about the film, and you know he fought for a lot of um, you know for a lot of the decisions that were made, mm. and by all accounts, you know kind of helped out the crew and things like that. And you get the impression, I mean, well, I, I certainly got the impression that he really believed in the film and did a lot to kind of support it. And I think it was quite nice hearing that. And you know, kind of politics aside, I did sort of think, yeah, yeah good on him. You know, he did sort of you know, he really sort of help this film out, and you know, perhaps to a degree, you know, he he, he did kind of. Um, were it perhaps not for his kind of input and kind of star power, would it have even been made? I don't really know. But I, you know, I, he was very pivotal in getting Wells to work on the film. It, it, I think it was his star power that got Wells back in the studio system. Yeah, that's the thing. Is it? Uh, you know, Orson Wells was just cast as Hank Quinlan, and they didn't have a mm. director. And Charlton Heston said, "Well, yeah, Wells directs. He he does a good mm. job with that. Maybe you should hire him." So you know, he is he is responsible for that. And so th- th- he is he is very noble in, in that regard with uh, in his dealings with Hollywood and his dealings with people in Hollywood. Because also, you know, not only that, but then later on in his career, uh, he threatened to walk off of uh, Major Dundee if the studio had uh, fired Sam Peckinpah, which they really wanted to do. Uh, I, in fact, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think there's any I studio can't in Hollywood. Why. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think there's any studio in Hollywood that didn't want to hi- fire Sam Peckinpah at one time <laughs> or another. I'm pretty sure there's still a couple that want to today. But and that's the thing. You know what? Uh, then since you've mentioned uh, you know his his political leanings the thing is I, I have a great deal of respect and high regard for Charlton Heston as an actor and yeah as far as his dealings with the NRA yes that's that's uh that's regrettable but you know what uh, with an actor like Charlton Heston I really don't think about that sort of thing a lot and also I am very aware that uh he did a lot for a lot of people during his career in Hollywood, in his in his earlier days, and you know he had you know participated in in you know uh, civil rights marches and things like that. Mm. The, the the NRA thing is just sort of like a, a blip on the radar that became very big, you know, because you have him on on videotape saying they can have my gun when they pry it out of my cold dead hands and all that sort of thing, and so unfortunately that ends up being like the lasting vision that some people have of him, but. Fortunately, I didn't have that to begin with. To begin with, I just had Charlton Heston in a lot of great movies, including one of my all-time favorite films, Ben-Hur. So I've always thought of Charlton Heston as an actor first and, you know, somebody who has, uh, you know, some certain political leanings uh, second. So, uh, and and I'm, I'm glad for that because Charlton Heston is a really good actor and, you know, his pol- you should put his politics aside and you should just enjoy his performances. No, I completely agree. And uh, it's... It, it, it's yeah, yeah, he's, he, yeah. As an artist, I think his work speaks for itself, and certainly, you know, like I said, I mean, like Ben Hur and all that kind of thing. I, I, I'd probably spin the NRA thing. Perhaps was that that he's declined into Alzheimer's? Then, so could we perhaps kind of spin it that way that he wasn't quite himself? But yeah, whatever. I, 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 I just agreed, and I like the fact that everyone calls him Chuck as well. <laughs> and, he, and he insists on being called Chuck, which I think is quite a cool kind of uh, part of his thing. But um, no, I mean, yeah, I, I think this is certainly one of the. the the best master cinema releases i've got this have you got the steel box edition uh i do not i only have the plastic one 
Because, uh, yeah, that one, I, as I'm, let me just double check, because last time I checked on Amazon, it was going for quite a kind of, a lot of that kind of that steel, steel box version. But this is definitely, it's region locked, isn't it, I think? So there's no yeah. chance of region this one. B. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, needless to say, it's not even listed anymore. So, yeah, if you have got a copy of it, kind of keep hold of it. It might be worth something in a while. But anyway, anything else we kind of want to add to that? Or- no, not uh, we can talk about uh, the video and audio quality a bit. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, quality, we talked yeah, about so. the audio uh, earlier with the mono version, and it sounds uh, really good, uh, especially the reconstructed version. I feel that it, they just enhanced everything to uh, make it more clear. But uh, also the visuals, um, they didn't work from the original camera negatives, from what I understand. But I feel there's still a good uh, contrast in the film, and the darks are pretty good and detail is good and uh maybe the 1998 version is uh, the one that looks best in my eyes yeah the, the grain structure is still there I and mean, i'm just on blu-ray.com now and they gave it kind of four and a half out of five and i you know, I tend to agree with that it, it still looks very filmic they've not kind of you know, done any kind of digital noise reduction and anything on that it's a, again it's another kind of very very respectful restoration which really i, I think is the most important thing for a film like this and yeah, hopefully yeah, it, it, it does feel quite definitive doesn't it i think mm, this there's, not a lot of, the... there's not a lot of damage to the film at all so yeah I would love to see this movie on Blu-ray. We don't have it on Blu-ray yet in the United States. I'm I'm hoping that that happens really soon. I'm particularly hoping that the Criterion Collection gets their hands on it. I know that they do have a licensing deal in place with Universal, the distributor of uh, Touch of Evil, and it would be really great if they could license that film and add it to the Criterion Collection and give it uh, give it the deluxe treatment and get it on Blu-ray. I would just mm. love to have that. It's, yeah, it's such a lottery. I mean, one of the things that kind of really winds me up though is the fact that. Um, yeah, you know, in the United States and Europe, we have the same films but different transfers, and it, it drives me mental when I see, like, um, a release that's come out in America, and I you know, I'll look at the review and they said, "Oh, the picture's stunning," and then you'll see that the European version um, reviewed, and they'll say, "Oh, well, the picture's got a few issues," and when they you know put up comparisons, there's some of the differences sometimes in film. It, it's so profound. I just don't, I can't work out how hard it is just to kind of do the best job possible. And I know it kind of, you know, we have these kind of various license issues, but one of my all time favorite films, Pattern, is being released on Blu ray. I think it's just been released actually, and I was so looking forward to it. And when Pattern originally came out in the States, um, it was this digital noise reduction disaster basically and then fox went out and they actually listened to the fans they re-released it with this new mastered version and it looks stunning there's no you know nothing it's nothing like this abomination that got released so when it was announced here on blu-ray i thought yeah i can't wait and then i checked the thing and it was the print the first run print they used in the states it was this noise reduced everyone's face just looks waxy and horrible and i was like god you know why'd you do that you know what why how hard is it and it just kind of creates this kind of animosity and so i, I do hope that you know if it does come out in the states that they kind of do use this this version of it because it, like i said I, I can't see it being any better i don't i don't know what you could do with it to make it look any better yeah well that's part of the reason why i hope that the criterion collection gets a hold of it because they will they are known for going out of their way to get the best possible version of everything and And i I think studios shoot themselves in the foot when they mess around like things because people a lot of people go and buy it anyway but there'll be that percentage people like us who will say well if you've done a box shop on this i'm not going to buy it yet i'm going to wait and see if there's another version coming out i'm still waiting for the 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 definitive version of el cid to come out on blu-ray because the one that's out at the moment it's from a 35 miller print and it's really just a kind of a 
1080p upgrade of a dvd and it's just begging to for someone to go back and kind of really kind of do it justice and it really does annoy me and yeah i just wish kind of studios would kind of listen to us geeks a little bit more (laughs) (laughs) yeah a lot of those uh samuel bronston productions el cid and uh, the fall of the roman empire and 55 days of peking and whatnot we're still waiting for them to do something really good with those here in the states as well I, i love that big fat epic filmmaking that kind of you know giant sets and millions of dollars and cast of thousands kind of thing that unfortunately you just you can't do anymore today it's too cost prohibitive so it all you you uh, not to say that we have any shortage of uh, astonishing sights and movies it's just that today a lot of it's done digitally and you can tell it's just not the same yeah it, yeah it's a tra- it is shame and you know that's one of the reasons why we love master cinema is because they are very very respectful to kind of the material that's actually there and why when you kind of why when i buy those films i do feel like um even if i'm kind of i will pick up any film that they release but even if it's one that i'm not particularly keen on i do actually feel like kind of hopefully anyway my money's going back into um a good cause and i think that's you know something we but we both kind of think isn't it really yeah definitely um okay i think that's going to be it. anything you kim that you can add no, I just want to thank Quest for coming on. I've, I've been a listener for on uh, Autocast from early on and just a great admirer of your and Broody's uh, like chemistry. And I, I, I love you listening to your film knowledge and your eloquence and just been a pleasure to listen to your opinions on the show. Yeah, and I can only echo that as well. I think you know, I feel it, it, it's so great that you know I've been listening to to your show for, for so long, and then for you to kind of come on ours, I, I do feel really honoured and privileged that you decided to come. And thank you so much for mm. doing it. Well, that's very kind of you to say. And you know, you guys are doing really well yourselves. I know this is a fairly uh, a new show uh, for you. Uh, I think you well, you haven't even quite got to ten episodes yet, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I've got a solo project as well, so I've been podcasting yeah. for a while. But this is our first kind of joint venture, as it were. Yeah. yeah, but you're off to a very strong start, though. I've I've listened to every episode of uh, of this podcast, and it's it's it, I I dig the concept, and uh, I dig what you guys have to say. It, you're doing a great job, so yeah, that's why I was I'm glad to participate. Brilliant, thank you, Wes. And where can we find you as well on the internet, Wes? Just so listeners know. Well, you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. West Anthony. And, of course, uh, you can find uh, the Autorcast uh, on iTunes or you can go to autorcast.com uh, and uh, you can go to our Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash autorcast and you can hit the like button and get updates on stuff that we're doing with that show. Brilliant stuff. Joachim, where can, we f- where can they find more about us on that? You can find us at moccast.blogspot.com. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at moc underscore cast. We're also on Facebook and Tumblr. And if you want to email us to tell us what you think of Touch of Evil or the show in general, you can email us at mastersofcinemacast at gmail.com. And uh, you can find me uh, on Twitter at thefilmman with two M's and two N's. Brilliant, you can find me on my other podcast, which is 24 Framescast. You can find that on 24framescast.blogspot.com. You can follow me at 24framescast on Twitter. And you can email me at 24framescast at gmail.com. Many thanks for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode. Bye.